0: I'm amazed uh, by a lot of things about you. But um, one thing that always comes to mind uh, and immediately when I see you and hear you is uh, that I, I think you are one of the greatest uh, people to preserve their inner child. And I wanted to ask you about that, how you how you still maintain uh, that that youthfulness inside of you. And the, you know, I see when I see you, I see a, a wise baby in a way <laughs> you uh-huh. know what i mean yeah yeah i uh, i don't mean it in a condescending way although you have all this knowledge i see you at least at how it looks for me you you're experiencing the, the the drums for the first time when i see you play the drums well you just answered your own question <laughs> <laughs>
1: that's that's pretty much uh pretty much the way uh, that's what goes on for me
2: Mm
1: -hmm. Um, (laughs) mm-hmm yeah you you, you answered it damn okay (laughs) (laughs) I mean it's nothing I I don't consciously think about it's just um, I was lucky enough to to have a two parents that were smart enough to let me lead in a particular in that way. Mm-hmm. You know, parents don't usually do that. I mean, the the uh, <laughs> parents usually tell kids everything to do, like as if they are not even human.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I don't. I don't think they mean to, but um. Uh, but in in that one particular area, my parents were really. That's the whole reason I'm able to um, generate the perception that, for instance, you have. It it really goes back from there. They they never said, don't do this, or do it this way, or you have to do it this way if you're going to... No, they, I think because they didn't know, and I think they were maybe that part of their humanness they were in touch with. And they let me... Um, discover things for myself and then they yeah it's like it's like if you let a young person lead it's amazing what will happen and rather than trying to keep a leash on them
0: right yeah
1: and uh, as long as they're not hurting themselves or uh, I I think it really makes a difference for young people they I mean it did for me because I don't think about it. But when I hear people tell me that all the time, what you've said, and I think it really goes back to how we treat young people, you know, each one of us, when we come across young people, if you're going to be around them, I think it's something you really need to uh, consider you, you you have a huge impact. And, and uh, it makes a big difference when you let them even though if you know that what's going on, it's not about oh, I know better, mm-hmm. it's not about the ego, but it's about letting them feel like they're in charge because actually they're <laughs> they are much smarter than we are. <laughs> we just have been around a little longer mm-hmm. relative to them and but they're functioning uh I mean, we can't compete with it. I mean, yeah. even, you're you're much younger than me, but even yourself, I mean, it, they're much smarter than any adult, mm. you, know, you know, children, infants, and uh, I think that's what happened with me. Yeah. You know, a lot, a lot of things didn't happen, but, but that, I feel so lucky that I had parents that they didn't know what this drumming stuff was or what following music was, but they uh, they paid attention to me going for it right and that's really that's uh I'll never be able to thank them enough
2: mhm
0: that's
1: beautiful what did they do uh you mean in their in their lives yeah uh my mother was a professional secretary mm. uh from the time she was in high school um My father was a salesman, Hmm. very uh, um, working class. Yeah. Uh, um, Before I came along, it was things were really, really uh, stressed and and very kind of brutal. Um, It was a little better by the time I came along, but um, that's pretty much what they did.
0: Yeah. So what, what was the spark that made you want to discover the drum? Well, I lived in we lived in
1: a a flat like a two-story house and we were on the bottom floor and um we had a little backyard and the trash cans were out in the back and I would take the trash out every day and we had an alleyway and just maybe six doors up the block from me I would he- hear this Tapping on it. I didn't know what it was. And it was uh, a guy who lived in the neighborhood who was, you know, a few years older than myself. And I would empty the trash and then walk up and just kind of listen. And I knew him, but I didn't want to go inside of the yard and bother him or anything. So I would keep listening. And then when I saw him uh, one time, I, he said, Come on in. So I, I came in and I was, just looked at the drum and he said, "I'm gonna uh, stop playing this, and I'll sell it to you if you want for twenty bucks, because I'm not going to continue." And, and I was in—I think I was in third grade or fourth grade, elementary school. It was about eight and a half or nine. So that's—it was a s- summer. It was school was just fixing to end, and. So I cut grass with a lawnmower all summer long and saved up $20.
0: <laughs> that takes you a summer. Well, for yeah. Back then, yeah.
1: Yeah, and it was not a gas mower. Yeah, okay, I see. It was a hand mower, so I just yeah. went all throughout the neighborhood. Mm. And uh I don't know, I just kind of liked something about the sound and and at third grade or fourth grade they start you out playing those little plastic flutes tonettes they called it and i wanted to sign up for the band and i kind of liked this thing of like it wasn't a it it, it was a potential noise maker but i kind of liked what might be possible because i didn't know so mm-hmm. i was i was kind of fascinated and I used to beat on the trash cans anyhow Yeah. when i take out the trash and I'd stay there. And then also when I would help out doing laundry at the laundromat or something. I, I like the sound, you know, when you tap on a washing machine. Yeah. It's, it's hollow and it reverberates. Yeah. I used to like that, you know. So I would just tap. Uh, and my brother used to tap along to the radio, just tap along to the whatever was playing on the radio, tap on the table and stuff. So I kind of liked hearing rhythm, mm-hmm. although I don't... It was, nothing, it was nothing special. It wasn't a special activity. It was just part of life in, in that time. Mm-hmm. You know? And I
0: think that's what, that was the spark. Yeah. Do you remember, um, or would you say, who, who were the first guys who also let you lead? uh when you were starting to to play the drum you know we're
1: in an age now when it's finally coming out what a boys club this is you know and it's really stupid it's it's really stupid that it has still to this day remained that and i have to say that um some of the most influential people in at the very beginning and all throughout were were, uh, were just people and they were Uh, women and men, and uh, my mom was, um, she heard through her job that one of her colleagues had a son that was starting a band, and they were looking for a drummer, and my mother just said, hey, my son plays the drums, and he has a, you know, and I was like a little kid, you know, her colleague's son was maybe four, five years older. And when Mm. you're a little kid, that's a big change. You know, my mother really campaigned, not pushing, she just was really proud, you know, and thought, well, hey, maybe he would like to do this. Yeah. So that and also the band director uh, at my elementary school, she was a violist in the symphony. And she probably was uh, the first musician that really, I mean, she she opened the door, really. How? Uh, well, uh, her name was uh, Elizabeth Franklin Woodson, and um, she was a violist for the Richmond Symphony, and she taught music in the elementary schools, and we would rehearse, we would hold our uh, there was no band room. It was just, we used the stage at the school auditorium, and there was a little room which she used as her office. And after school one day, um, she heard me and a trombone player and a trumpet player just jamming on Louie Louie mm-hmm. by the Kinks. That was, The Kinks had the hit. It was uh, originally written by a... Uh, I think a West Indian musician, I forgot his name right now, but anyhow, Louie Louie was a huge hit at the time, and it's just three chords, and <laughs> and uh, there was no drum set. I put the concert bass drum on the floor, and I put a drumstick in my shoe, and I kind of kicked the bass drum, and then I took the <laughs> snare drum and set it up by it, and then there was a suspended cymbal. and. I don't know if you know that version of the song, but it's just really basic, a lot of
0: Maybe I've heard it. I I don't have it in my mind right now. It's just
1: three chords, one, four, five, over and over and over in in a two bar pattern, all three chords, one, four, five, four, one. And um, oh, oh, yeah, songwriter. Uh, My partner here, Robin, is just bringing me uh, information. Songwriters are Richard Berry. Okay. Louis, 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 and the Kinks kind of ripped it off and had the big hit.
0: Right. Okay. Um,
1: <laughs> thanks. It's
0: great that you have an assistant. <laughs> <laughs> she's she's
1: the one who I steal all my stuff from. <laughs> and she's an amazing percussionist, Robin okay. Shulkowski. She's she's incredible. Great. Um, yeah. So anyhow, uh, we we thought, hey, let's stay after school. And just jam. And uh so we did that and we were just going da 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 da, oh, yeah. da 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 That's all the song is. Yeah. That's it. It doesn't go anywhere, it's just lyrics and and she we were doing it for about ten or fifteen minutes. We thought we were all alone. And then all of a sudden we see a door opening off the side of the stage. And she comes out and she's like clapping and moving around. She's an old lady, you know. I mean, for us at the time, yeah. she's probably like in her 40s or something. But that was old. Sure, you know? yeah. And she was dancing and she said, hey, fellas, why don't we do this at the uh, parent-teacher's meeting? We'll, we'll do a concert. And we'll do this, you know. Great. We'll feature you three, you know, we'll do our normal program, but then we'll feature you in the middle of the program. That sounds great. Do it again. Yeah. And she she was laughing and encouraging us. I mean, that was it. And she went up to my mother at one of these meetings where all the teachers meet the parents of the kids. And she went up to my mother and my father, and she grabbed their hands and she said, Get this child a teacher. Mm. She shook them. Yeah. <laughs> and um, and she suggested a guy who was a fabulous, probably the best teacher I ever had in my life. Uh, couldn't play, wasn't really a, a wasn't anybody that you would say is a really great player. Mm-hmm. But the way he taught me was just fantastic. He just taught me you know he showed me how to hold the sticks or um it, it, he didn't even have a lot of technique but he he taught me how to figure out how to read music mm. okay. or how to read rhythms i I don't really read pitches yeah, I never trained that way i ba- i basically lead read uh you know single rhythm lines uh, that's that's what I was how I was trained in. but the way he taught me to do it was so fantastic and he was so he just gave me enough information for me to go home and figure everything out so he yeah. would give me a page to figure out and he would show me okay this is the time signature this is what the top number means is what the bottom number means and this is what a quarter note looks like and this is what a quarter note rest looks like and here (laughs) go home and you figure the rest out and come back next week and play it for me great so he didn't spoon feed me Mm -hmm. he also let you lead in a way right exactly and i think that's really uh so important for You know, when you're relating to people, trying to share something with them that they don't know how to do, that you do know how to do. I think a lot of times uh, teachers forget that point where they themselves were not able to do it and how they got to that moment. where That moment
0: is special, right?
1: Yeah. And most people don't. Remember that. Mm -hmm. And that's, I mean, if you're going to share information with people, I think that's really the prerequisite in order so that the person understands. Because it's so easy. You know, once you start, ah, okay, you don't even think about what is a time signature. But to somebody that doesn't know anything, Mm. it's a really hard thing to comprehend and to understand. And, And to put yourself there is the best chance you have. At allowing them to understand it fully, yeah. Mm. so yeah, Mrs. Woodson, she was she was really crucial, and uh, the teacher's name was C. L. McClure, mm-hmm. we called him Mac McClure, very nice guy, really, you know, and he played the kind of jobs where you just play um, they had what they call cotillion. In a lot of these uh, Catholic schools, they would have dances. And they had what they call cotillion. It's just, I don't even know what that word means, but it was just ordered dances where people learn a dance and there's a band that plays a song that has the rhythm that they dance to. Real corny stuff. Mm. And I remember when I was in a rock and roll band, we would play the rock and roll half of the evening. And he was in a band sometimes that, played at the beginning of the evening when people were trying to learn a waltz right, and learn a foxtrot and all that stuff, and I would watch him play, and even though I was a little bit I wasn't disappointed, I just didn't have anything to compare it to, I just watched him, how he played, and, and then uh, he would watch when I played a little bit, you know, and, and he was all, he was just really supportive. He was never judgmental of the kind of music I was involved with. Um, he was basically uh, in the music business. He was a salesman at this music store mm. he was partners with a guy and he taught drum lessons, I guess, to help the income, his, his yeah. income. But he was a great, great teacher,
2: mm.
1: you know, um, and unfortunately, all the people in my early stages, they all vanished very quickly. They—he was killed in an automobile accident. Mm. Um, Just—I mean, I studied with him, and then he said, "I've taught you all I can teach you. I'd like to pass you on to this." Uh, he was the local big band drummer, uh, a guy named Dick Proctor. None of these people, people, you know, or any people that people know about, but to me they were the real important people yeah. for me. And so this guy was kind of like, uh, he played with the big band, and um, and he was kind of like, wow, if you can study with this guy, <laughs> you know, that's pretty big deal, you know, and mm-hmm. so he knew him and he said, hey, you know, I have a student and I think he would be good to study with you. And, so he and right after he made I made that transition um, he got he did, he passed away in an auto accident. Mm-hmm. Then uh, Mrs. Woodson, uh, I was in junior high school, and she passed away. And all these people that I met and that were very important to me at that time, a, a lot of them had early deaths from either accidents or cancer or uh, you know I never got to. The privilege to go back at the point when I had a little bit more together and a little bit more to offer to go back and like say hey thanks this is I learned this you know because of you. I never had yeah. that opportunity but
0: well you're celebrating them when you play I guess
1: yeah I always think about them yeah it's special
0: they're, they're, they're there Ah, oh, great was uh, was Carmen McRae somebody who let you lead also?
2: Yeah,
1: um, you know, from an early while I was still, in, you know, I came up in Richmond, Virginia, there were uh, two people who were older than me, they were they were, um, I mean, the first, my first playing experience was in the school band. There was not a, there wasn't a jazz band. There were no jazz programs. It was like a concert band, and you play, umpa marches. Yeah. You know, that's it. And uh, um, occasionally, yeah. While I was in elementary school, um, I tried out for this rock and roll band uh, that was in the neighborhood, and I made it. You know, they liked me and so we would rehearse three four days a week right after school And it was right around the corner from where i went to school and everybody lived within a two or three blocks the rest of the guys lived within a block of each other and i was had to walk maybe four or five blocks and uh we played all the time and we listened together we learned like uh, it was a we played uh, music of the day, you know, 1964, 65, you know, Jimi Hendrix, the Beatles, mm. Booker T and the MGs, uh, Santana, mm. uh, you know, the mid 60s, early in the, into mid 60s. And we learned all of these songs by listening to the records and copying the solos and. Uh, just directly by ear and helping each other and trying and then fuck it up and then put the record back on. Um, So it was a very direct process. And and, um, and we all let each other, we, we all supported each other doing it. We did it together and it was fun. And then I, while I was During sometime during that time, while I was taking drum lessons from this uh, guy Dick Proctor, uh, he was going through a divorce, and he was teaching at this guy's house, his apartment. And this guy was also a student, and he was in college at the time. And I was like maybe 12 years old, or yeah, something like that, 11 or 12 years old. And my dad would drive me to this guy's apartment in. He was living, he had a roommate, and then all of a sudden he had had another roommate, my drum teacher, you know, while he was trying to figure out his divorce. And uh, this guy's name was Tom Rodman. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, he went on to uh, be in the business world, but he loves drumming with a passion to this day. But we remain friends uh, since that time. His roommate was a guy, these two, the reason I'm taking the time to tell you is that these two people were really important and have been every step of the way from 1960s to 2018. Um, Mm -hmm. Tom's roommate was a guy named Bill Lohr, L-O-H-R. Bill was a pianist and uh, Bill was, he was a musician. Tom was, uh, he was interested in a lot of different things. Bill was more kind of quiet and really focused on music, and Tom was living life, you know what I (laughs) mean? And so, but these two guys shared, um, you know, music together. They had a fantastic record collection. They had a really cool stereo, which I, you know, didn't have. And they had headphones, which was a big deal. Mm. So, I would hang out at their place uh, just to listen to records with them. Ah, It was so cool because they were like big, you know, I was this little kid and um,
0: they loved doing that together. And uh, And when uh, you're young, it makes an impression when you listen to to music with uh, guys that are older than you on what they pay attention, right? Yeah, you kind of look at how they look when they're listening. Yeah. And, and I remember that. It's really,
1: I mean, it was not isolated. It mm-hmm. was a real uh social thing. Mm. To to share. It was really special. He had 33 Oscar Peterson records and he knew every voicing on every one.
2: That's by Bi-
0: That's
1: Bill Lore, right? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. This guy is a genius. I mean, nobody knows of him, but he I I haven't heard anybody that plays uh voicings in the manner that he does dealing with standard tunes and standard harmony. I know of no one that does it better um but, and understands it better.
0: But yeah. how come nobody's ever heard of him or has somebody heard of him? Can I hear of him? Well, <laughs> a few people but you know I don't think anybody
1: in, in outside of very small circles because he um you know people make choices in life some people want to go to the big city and um you know get exposed or deal with all all the bullshit that there is and there's tons of it and other people just aren't really uh, it's not part of their makeup to to do that Mm
2: -hmm.
1: you know bill and i went to berkeley together for a very short time, and and, uh, they treated him really poorly because Mm. he didn't understand the terminology of what Berkeley called certain voicings, and so on the entrance test that they give for placement, (laughs) you know, he was in my ear training class, (laughs) you know, I mean, I didn't know jack shit. (laughs) He meanwhile by that time he knew voicings you could play him any Bill Evans record any Herbie Hancock record any you know you just play it. he would go right to the piano and nail the voicing mm. and not only nail it but really understand why mm-hmm. that particular voicing why the guy chose to do that and 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 why it worked he That's the thing that's so incredible about him. And like when uh, I mean, he, we worked together with Al Jarreau in the Mm. seventies for a very short period, and then um, one by one, we each got fired for you know just really stupid (laughs) music business reasons. And um, he played for Carmen McRae, yeah, uh, for a very short period. But sometimes you know like. When people don't have work, like Carmen uh, didn't have work all the time, and you know he's he was a little bit older than me, and he need he had a little quite a few more responsibilities than than I did at that time. This was mid 70s. When that happens, you have to keep working. You have to find work. You have to do something. And sometimes you take a gig because Carmen's not working, and then she gets a gig and and you can't do it. You know, it's Mm. just that simple. And then they get somebody else. And, you know, it's just sometimes it it works that way. Yeah. You know, I mean, I think everybody experiences that I've experienced that loads. You know, when I was real busy with Bill Frizzell, uh, I would get calls all the time from people, you know, that I really wanted to play with, but it was like a one shot thing, or at the moment, it was a one shot thing. and, And I was really committed to uh, Bill and the music we were doing in the group. It was a long range group. I've been lucky enough to always be um, attracted to people that had those kind of projects where yeah. we were building something rather than going and doing a jazz show. Yeah. So I think with Bill War, i I think that's part of it, mm. a big, a big part. I mean, that can, there are tons of people that you never hear about. Uh, that are just incredible,
0: yeah,
1: uh, uh, incredible musicians on every instrument. And you know, maybe s- some people they don't like to fly, they don't like to leave town. Mm-hmm. Especially these days, if you don't like to fly, if you don't like to travel, you're not going to work in the, yeah. on the on the jazz circuit. So that's a choice of um, you know that people make, or sometimes you're put in that position. Mm. It depends. So I think that's that's probably why. And plus, your own ability to tolerate how much bullshit are you willing to put up with. And I, I think everybody has a different tolerance level. and it's true. And Bill's is different than mine. Mm-hmm. Uh, I kind of strayed off the track, but but I think I was what I was talking about was um, how influential um, those two guys were, Tom Robin and Bill Lohr, they let me lead. They accepted, they welcomed me. They didn't say, oh, you little kid, you know, you don't know what you're talking. They didn't lay any of that. We were all equals when we had in front of the stereo and we were talking about music and and I was just obsessed. I lived and breathed uh, drumming and listening to music And, and Bill Lohr was the one that said, because up to that time, I was fascinated by, of course, technical things, the surface things. You know, uh, when I started playing, Gene Krupa was still actually alive and circulating. Mm. I got to see him play in Washington D.C. with a quartet one time. Uh, he was on television all the time. Uh, Buddy Rich was yeah. uh, very much present. Uh, Ringo Starr was very present. James Brown was very present mm. you know those so I didn't have people saying oh you only listen to the jazz thing don't listen to this it's rock and Or, I didn't have anybody saying anything about any of that stuff it was all just part of something that wow there's somebody playing drums there yeah I, lo- I like the way that feels yeah it might have been Charlie Pride who was a uh, african-american country singer might have been Ray Charles might have been Booker T and EMGs, might have been Jimmy Smith, Mm -hmm. might have been Bitches Brew. I was lucky enough to be around adults that, that welcomed a young person and did not see me as a threat in any way because of my age, race, any kind of identity that they would perceive of me I, I was really fortunate, and part of that, I guess, is when you're a young person, you aren't a threat in a certain way to most adults. You're just a kid, and yeah. that's kind of an advantage, you know. When, when you get bigger and you start getting ugly, <laughs> you know, you're not this cute little kid anymore. You know, when you, when you get bigger, then you are perceived as a possible threat to whatever, you know, for all the stupid reasons that, that we're uh, kind of diseased with as a society, mm-hmm. you know, uh, then it, then that's where the really hard stuff happens. And then that's where how much bullshit are, are you willing to tolerate and how do you navigate that? Right. And but these two guys, Tom Robin and Bill Lor, they were, I, I can't tell you how many hours we spent listening over and over to like maybe one four bar phrase of a record to where the record when the needle would go down after a while it would just go (laughs) 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 and we had to wait weeks to get a record you know if Mm -hmm. we heard of a new record coming out you know I'd save some bread from you know I worked all through Uh, I was doing gigs you know on the weekends and stuff so I would save money and you know I would make 20 bucks or 15 bucks for a gig or something and I would save part of that to go buy records at the Churchill record shop or any re- any place you could buy records yeah and and, and uh, a lot of times you had to order them special I remember uh, Miroslav Vitus had the mountain in the clouds or oh, infinite search man I remember when that came out I had to wait like eight weeks and I would call the music shop up every day. This yeah. guy was so he could tell from the way the phone rang. Yeah, oh, this pain in the ass again. <laughs> and then is it in yet? And then finally one day they called me. They said, "Come down here and get this and stop.
0: Yeah, calling it. get out of our lives." <laughs> but it was worth it, right? I mean, the record is astounding. You know. Oh, I, we we listened to it. I mean, it, it's still.
1: It's funny, Joe Henderson's first melodies in Freedom Jazz Dance still to this day stick in my ear, Yeah, you know, in the way. I mean, it's also interesting how different you perceive things many years later and how, you know, you, you still find things that you like and then you discover some things that, oh, maybe that wasn't that great, you know. Yeah, or, sure. <laughs> it's just fun. It's really fun to keep investigating that stuff. And, but uh, it was with Bill and uh, mainly through Bill because Bill had the time more and, and basically eventually they were not roommates and so I spent a lot of time hanging out with Bill and listening to records and any time I could you know have extra I'd go over to his apartment and, and it was through him that I first heard Carmen McRae who would hear these records of her live with a trio and um. And the sound of an upright bass walking and mm. the way she sang and the, and, and the feeling that came and i remember the first time i heard one of those records it was something just jumped to me like man i want to i want to be part of that mm. <laughs> and that kind of um that was a really big deal for me yeah you know, and listening to those things over and over, and playing along with them, and and just feeling that incredible force, or feeling that that they created, mm-hmm. and from not doing anything, she didn't have a great technical gift as far as a voice goes, and none of the people playing with her were, you know, they weren't really about chops. But man, could they really create a team? work effort and and, you know not every time but but they just really swung and they were really soulful and uh what she did with what she had that was a huge that was a a real template for me Mm -hmm. you know like people how people use what they have to get where they want to go yeah, that's kind of been a real, if there's any secret to anything I do, that's that was it. That was the seed of it right there. And mm-hmm. I kind of owe that to uh, to Bill. Yeah. And he would say, you know, speaking about Buddy Rich and Gene Kruper and the technique that, you know, like I'm sure when you're playing piano or whatever instrument, you're completely impressed by the Art Tatum's technique and Oscar's technique and uh, classical player, you know, Horowitz's, Rubinstein's and Richter's technique. It's always, you know, the technical, the very surface stuff is what really wows people. But then um, Bill would notice that, you know, because I would practice just trying to get my hands to go as fast as Buddy Rich. Trying <laughs> get I would go through all kinds of and you know, I just wanted I wanted to do that. I wanted mm. my hands, I want to be as Dynamic and as impressive as Buddy Rich, or, or, yeah, anybody that, but, but he was the model, you know, because he's such a, I mean, he's a freak. He, he was a freak. And, um, and I remember Bill, we were listening and he, he was a matter of, he is a matter of fact guy. He looked at me and he said, Hey, man, why don't you get your head out of the drums and into the music? Hmm. And, I said, what do you mean? And then he put on an Oscar Peterson record. And I'm listening to it, and I'm I'm not. I remember, because at that stage, I had an Elvin Jones trio record. Remember those okay. records he did was, on Blue Note uh, with Joe Farrell. Farrell? Yeah. And I would listen to him, and I, I I didn't get it. And he said, what's so great about that? And he's not even, <laughs> you know, I was only thinking about the technique. He's only going ba-boom, ba-boom with the bass yeah. drum. Or, or, I did not understand it at all, or I'd listen to um, other drummers and say, well, man, they're not even playing a solo. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> I was totally guilty of all of that shit, you know, and after Bill said that, he put on this record called We Get Requests. You mm-hmm. Know that record? Sure, yeah. And he said, man, just listen to what everybody's doing on this. And I listened to not, Every, I, I mean, I didn't pay attention to only what the drummer was doing, but I noticed how it fit. Mm. That was a huge, I mean, those were the real greatest, probably some of the greatest lessons I ever had was having somebody mention that and then kind of paying attention to me as I discovered it for myself. Yeah. And and I noticed how tasty Ed pin was. It's like, oh, mm-hmm. wow. You know, and then I start thinking, yeah. (laughs) And then, you know, uh, um, my band director, when I was uh, in high school, that was in the late 60s, Tuscan Jasper. Mm -hmm. He was the band director. He played trumpet, and he had a sound like Clifford Brown. Mm. He was amazing, and he he was a jazz player. I mean, he played all kinds of music. But he could play. He would take me in after the band class because he ended up having to be a policeman more than a music teacher. The only reason people went to the band class for the most part was because they could get into the football games for free. You know, because they were a marching band. Yeah. There was no real jazz band still at that time. It was marching band or concert band. There was no jazz program. But... After class, he would say, Hey Joey, come here. And he'd go in his little office and he'd take out a record and he put it on. He said, You got a few minutes? I said, Yeah. He said, I want you to sit down and listen to this. So he put the record on, and man, it was like incredible. He said, You like you like that? And I said, Yeah. He said, You know who that is? I said, No. He said, That's Philly Joe Jones. Ooh. Said, so you know who that piano player is? I said, No. He said, That's Winton Kelly. And he says, yeah, I was in the army with him. Wow. And he would tell me he would just and then that's all he'd say. And he'd sit there and smile and listen to the whole record with me. And he'd look at me and just smile as I was kind of hearing this stuff. And it was like, welcome. (laughs) Yeah. You know what I mean? And, And I didn't realize it at the time because I was just unaware of what goes on in society as an adult. I was just completely immersed in the music. But here's a guy that probably saw more horseshit than you or I could imagine in his life. And he could put that aside and welcome me into something that was so valuable you know without laying any trip on me at all yeah just welcome beautiful and uh that was uh you know things developed from that i mean i there are hours and hours of stories you know from that but but that uh that experience and he you know he would say hey joey you know I get together with these guys, uh, you know, there were the black schools and the white schools and the, and you know, the two didn't really mix too much and, and the black musicians, uh, the music school teachers, they would get together and they had a big band and they would just play Thad Jones charts or Neil Hefty charts or, you know, things from Count Basie or um, uh, arrangements, stock arrangements that they could get, you know. Uh, and they would get meet once a week at somebody's high school band room after hours, and and it was a whole scene, you know. Mm. And my trumpet teacher Tuscan, Mister, I I still call him Mister Jasper. <laughs> he came he came over to me. He said, Hey Joey, you know, we get together every Tuesday night or whatever night it was. I think it was Tuesday or Wednesday. And he said, You know, the drummer that's making it, man, he's making it, but he ain't making it. <laughs> And he said he works at the airport and he's not going to be able to come at all. And he said, man, I think you'd, you'd fit right in. He said, do you think you'd get your dad to bring you over there? And I said, I'll be there. And so my dad, we drove over to John F. Kennedy High School and uh, unloaded my drums, set up. And then sure enough, there were about 18 guys I never knew before set up and then there was this one guy who came every week with a reel-to-reel tape recorder to record everything he was a big band freak mm. and he would sit there and smoke his pipe and man everybody i'm you know these are like 50 year old men or 45 year old men and i'm just a little fart you know <laughs> and we we played a tune and they all looked over and they said they the look on their face they said yeah let's do number 42 <laughs> let's, try, let's try this one now, and, they, you know, and the leader came over and said, do you think you can make, do this next week? You know, my father said, yeah. yeah. So that was, I don't know, That's I, I can't put a, any price on that. I am forever mm. indebted to that welcome that I had into a community that was very special. Mm. Yeah. That I respect, and, and uh, you know. And now, as a uh, older guy, I, I totally, I, I, I just, I wish those guys were around. So now, so I could go back, and, and particularly uh, Mr. Jasper and the the leaders of the band, and all these guys that were, you know, some of them were had really hard lives. And that Tuesday night rehearsal was that's what they lived for. -hmm. Others were band directors, and they had families and everything. But well, that was that was my education in high school. I didn't learn anything. I I was a horrible student, otherwise. But that I learned. Yeah. And that was wherever Jasper is now. I I hope he knows how valuable that was. Berkeley. I went for a summer, and then in '72 I went back. I, I quit. I didn't quit school, but I finished high school a year early in order that I could just.
0: Me too. Yeah, it's great, isn't it? Yeah, it's the best thing. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> if you and find uh, something that you really love, and then you can get out of there, you know. Yeah, the greatest I, feeling. I, I wouldn't
1: have made it that last year. Mm-hmm. I, so i went to back to berkeley for a semester and then with with bill Lohr and uh uh we had a band that we traveled across the country from you know we worked i guess a year and a half or a year and in 1975 the band broke up and we settled in la uh, he and his wife at the time and and uh and then he moved back to richmond and I stayed in L.A. and uh, I was really dead set on Carmen McRae. That's why I stayed in L.A. I, yeah. I, was, I didn't know anything about Los Angeles. I didn't know there was a recording industry out there. I didn't know anything. I just knew Carmen lived there. And while I was on the road with this uh, cover band, we played hotel lounges for a month or two months at a time. And we lived there. That was that was my home. You know, uh, we would play. We go from state to state playing a Holiday Inn or a Hilton because they had lounges with live music at the time. And, uh, you know, there's five people in one room. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's how you lived. And and, uh, and while I was on the roads, a friend of mine at Berkeley was uh, gotten the gig with Chuck Mangione, who was a big deal. Yeah, in 1974, uh, 1975 and at Berkeley, everybody always made fun of me because I was more interested in, in the swinging aspect of uh, playing rather than the straight eighth note uh, fusion world. To me, that was not really very interesting because I grew up in that. Um, I grew up in that. That was of my time. It wasn't a mystery to me.
2: Yeah.
1: The other stuff was a mystery. But uh, everybody trying to be hip at Berkeley or, you know, peer hipness, everybody was only focused on Weather Report and uh, Mahavishnu and everybody was trying to play that way. And I, it wasn't interesting for me. So I got known for wanting to do, yeah, Joey, all Joey wants to do is play for Carmen McCrae. You know, they used to make fun of me. So this guy named Chip Jackson, wonderful bassist
0: yeah i remember that name
1: yeah uh we were really good friends and he was on the road with chuck Mangione, and oh. he sent me a telegram when i was somewhere in wyoming he was in los angeles doing the merv griffin show which was a very big talk show yeah with chuck Mangione, and he heard through the grapevine carmen mcrae was looking for a drummer so he there i am in some holiday inn and I get this message, and I'm going, "Holy shit!" And so I write, I write uh, a telegram, and I find out Carmen McRae's address and the you know, and I send her the telegram. How did you find that out back then? How did you find an address out? Oh man, if I'm good, that's one thing I can do. You know, besides playing playing music, I if there's somebody you want to find, I can find them. I don't know how <laughs> I just don't give up. I, I can find it.
2: OK, most I'll, of the time. I'll
1: keep that in mind. <laughs> I can find them. I, I think I called people and uh, I just looked up phone books. And yeah, uh, I called people who had a phone book because there was no Internet or it's only telephone and telephones were expensive at that time. So yeah. I had to have it really together. And um, Chip may have given me a number of her manager or something, I, I but I've, I got her address and I sent it to her. And I never heard anything back. And so, okay, now the band that I'm with breaks up. And I'd sent her two, two telegrams saying, my name is Joey Baron, you know, I play drums and I, I would do anything to play with you, you know, uh, never heard anything. So I moved to settle in Los Angeles after this band breaks up that I'm with. And I call everybody in town. Uh, I get I join the union, and I get an answering service because that's at the time they said you have to join the service if you want to get any work. So I put everything I had, <laughs> which wasn't much into that. And I had the union book and I went down any people names that I knew or that I knew that worked with Carmen, I would call. So I met Frank Severino. I met Donald Bailey. Mm. Uh, those two guys were really influential. And in the prize, I met Hampton Hawes. Mm. I called him because he wrote this book, Raise Up Off Me. And I saw his name in the union book, so I just said, okay, I'm going to call him because I want to read that book, but I can't find it anywhere. So I called it. Yeah. And, and he answered the phone. I, I said, uh, Mr. Haas, my name's Joey Barron, and, and uh, I'm new in L.A., and I know you've written this book, and I'm wondering if you could tell me where I could buy it because I'm really interested, and I love all the records that you play on, and I'm new in town. And then as I'm talking to him, I'm thinking, like, go ahead tell him you want to play (laughs) so i said and i was real awkward and i said well you know i tell you what mr haws if if you'd like to play sometime man i sure would like to play with you i I, I really loved and so he he took my name and he told me a bookshop where i could go find the book and a week later i get a telephone call and he said is this joey and i said yeah he said this is ham he said, you know where Pomona is? I said, no, but I'll find it. So he, he gave me the address and I just ran out of my apartment, just ran out. My drums were in the car. I just went straight to his house. I, didn't, I spent all afternoon, evening and night. I didn't get back to my apartment until like 10 o'clock, or 11 o'clock the next day. We played all night long.:
2: Oh, great. And was their bassist?:
1: the, Uh yeah, he was a guy from Motown. I don't remember his name. He played electric bass mm-hmm. but we played all all night. really
0: nice guy. Uh,
1: I do not remember his name. Mm.
0: And also i I read a book by Hampton Horse, but I'm not sure it was the same. Did he also write another one? I only
1: I only know of this one called
0: "Raise Up Off of Me." He talks about his time in the army and you know playing with Charlie Parker and yeah,
1: that's the book and his and his time in prison
0: yeah and then yeah. JFK bails pardon. him out yeah well, pardon. Yeah. him yeah yeah then yeah. I, okay I, I know the book yeah it's a great book and
1: yeah and he was a wonderful guy in uh. We were. I, I ended up working. He called me uh, um, several times to play with him at a place called Dante's and other clubs yeah. around L.A. But anyhow, during during that time, I was also substituting a lot. You know, people word got out around town that hey, there's this there's this white dude that just came into town and he wants to work with Carmen McRae. <laughs> You know what I mean? In other words, to all the adults, that was just another job to them with somebody, you know, they, was, you know, the boys club again. They didn't like a woman who was strong. Mm. They didn't like somebody telling them what to do. And plus, Carmen could be pretty rough. Mm. And there are reasons for that. But, um, but, you know, sexism, what it is, uh, that was the thing that got around town, around Man, there's a guy here, and he wants to go through that shit. <laughs> so my name got around town very okay. fast. Yeah. And uh, I was playing at this place called Tales Out in Hollywood with a wonderful pianist named Dave Mackay, And uh, Frank De La Rosa was a bassist. And Frank had worked with all the singers. He knew them all, Ella uh, Saravan. Uh, Carmen, Nancy Wilson, uh, mm. Irene crawl, he he's seasoned bass player working through all those for all those people. and he used to he knew how all I would talk about was Carmen McCray. man, you know, like how do you get to play with her? And he used to kid me all the time while we're playing uh, at this club. He would just lean over and say, "Hey, man, she's here." and he would I would, <laughs> I would look around and he would just <laughs> laugh at me. he would just laugh and Dave was blind. Oh, he yeah. couldn't see it, but he would—he would—I would see him smile because he knew Frank was fucking with me. Yeah, and he fucked with me all the time, you know. And, but in a good way. It was—you know—I wasn't pissed at him. But one night we're playing. I'm—I'm I'm working there. I was subbing for Peter Donald, who was also very yeah. helpful to me. And we're playing. I got my eyes closed, you know, and it's just upright bass, piano, drums, and. Really great scene, you know couches, people just relaxing you know, and listening. It was really fun, and uh, he leans over, Frank leans over and says, Hey, man, she's here, just right <laughs> at ten o'clock, ten o'clock. she's right there and I, I I knew I said, okay, man i'm gonna I just looked up, I said, Man, fuck you <laughs> like he was on my right I, I just leaned out I was playing, I said, man, Frank, fuck you." <laughs> and, then, and then, as I went back to my pose, out of the corner of my eye, there she is almost oh. right at my elbow, sitting at a table, just looking at me, smiling. <laughs> and then I look back at Frank, and, and he and Dave Mackay, who, <laughs> you know, he, he was hearing it, yeah. they were just laughing their ass off while they're playing. Wow. <laughs> and uh you know of course I met her and gave her my number sure and I said you know I was so nervous I said just to touch her hand was like amazing and mm-hmm. just you know hear her voice and real hear her speak you know it was like wow she's like the record you know? <laughs> and so she says well okay honey I'll, I I'll keep your number you know I'll, uh, thank you you know and uh A couple weeks later, I get a call and she gives me her address. I think it was 2200 Summit Ridge Drive. You still remember it? Oh, yeah. Um, Yeah. And it was in Bel Air, which is in a very exclusive part of Beverly Hills. Hmm. And this, you know, it's 1975. It wasn't that long after, uh, you know, the Sharon Tate murders in Beverly Hill. Uh, with uh, Charles Manson, oh, Charles okay. Manson, uh, you know, brutally organized this team of people, and they went into Roman Polanski's house and while well, he was gone or something, and they just slaughtered people. Well, it was in you know Beverly Hills, and Beverly Hills had it's a very exclusive, rich persons community. They have their own police force and everything. Okay, so that hadn't happened that long ago when I was uh, called to come audition at Carmen's house right and I had full I had a uh, curly like a Jew furrow yeah with beard yeah and uh, you know I was like 19 and uh, I had a van a white Ford Econoline van that's all I had I, I Pay cash for that. And that's, I figured if things didn't go so well, I could live in the van. <laughs> sure. So I'm driving with my Thomas Brothers map. That was the map that everybody has in LA to find your way. And I was driving, and I'd pull over and look at the map. Okay. Because Beverly Hills is really complicated, all these winding streets. And I don't know nothing. I've never been, it's not my kind of, I don't come from that background, you know. Yeah so i'm I'm lost. here I am. I got my drums supposed to be there like at eleven or something, and let's just say eleven and and it's I left plenty early, but I am way lost in Beverly Hills. I don't know where the fuck I am, and so I'm riding around streets and stopping and pulling over and all of a sudden, when I finally get my way, uh I notice there's like two police cars following me and as I'm getting right up to the top of the hill, she lived at the top of the hill, um, they turn on their lights, and I pull into a parking space like, it's almost like a little, I think it was a cul-de-sac or something like, like a dead end in front of her house, and I'm late, I'm I'm seriously late, and this is my audition with Carmen McRae, right? And the, the lights are flashing from two cop cars, they they kinda pull in and back of my van, they surround me. The lights are flashing, I'm late, I open the ba- I get out of the car, I look up at the house, which is a really nice house, I've never seen anything like it, and the door opens, and Carmen comes out, you know, like in a little house dress and uh, with and she looks at me, she's smoking a cigarette, she looks at me, and she looks at the policeman. And then she looks at her watch. And then she looks back at me, and then she just shakes her head and and shaking her head and then she waves the police off. She doesn't even say anything. She just <laughs> goes like that. And then turns around and walks into the house. Doesn't say shit to me. And close and, and, and kinda like closes the door. She closes the door on you? Yeah. Yeah, and I'm sitting there, and I said, "Okay, I better get my drums out right away." And I think I'm thinking, "Man, she is pissed." Mm-hmm. So I'm carrying all my drums stacked up. <laughs> I, I didn't have cases; they sure. were just stacked up, and I'm I'm balancing them and trying to ring the doorbell, and then one of the guys, a uh, piano player, um, who was there, Marshall Otwell. I didn't know that they just auditioned the day before. I see. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that. So the door opens and I walk in and she says, she yells, and uh, yeah, just down the stairs, a few stairs, and I'm right there, you know. So I set up the drums and she's in the kitchen and she said, yeah, just set up and yell when you're done. And nobody's saying anything. The piano player and bass player, they're not saying a word. It's like really cold. And I didn't realize this because they were scared too. (laughs) So I set up my drums and and, uh, she comes in and she pulls up right next to me. She sits right next to my hi-hat. And she says, okay, honey, uh, take the book out there and and, uh, let's do clear day. Clear day, okay, I know her arrangement by heart, but I'll take the chart out and read it anyhow. So I take the chart out and she counts it off. And we just play two bars. So dun 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 and, and then she stop and she's smoking and she puts her head down like you know, elbows are on her knees, she's sitting down and she's just like that. <laughs> She, I, I, was, I was literally sweating buckets, and all I could see was the back of the piano player's back because he was facing the other way. He didn't do anything. The bass player was just looking at the floor. Mm. And I'm thinking, oh, this is it. This is the end of the, my life here. And then when she looked up, and just a stone straight face, and she looked at me, paused, You got the gig, motherfucker. <laughs> and then I just jumped and gave her a hug, and and she wow. hugged. That was that was one of the
0: best days of my life. Yeah, I mean, you came you came well prepared, you know. Yeah, I mean, I I knew I I just
1: I I didn't know anything really, but I just knew that boy. She, I knew I wanted to learn how to do what she does.
2: Mm.
0: What was your favorite record by her back then? The one that you always go went back to. Um, she did a series
1: of live records on mainstream label and they've all been repackaged. So um, there are various ones. There was one I, I particularly liked the small group live records, the ones where she was with it. The, there's ones, uh it was repackaged in a cd form and they called it alive mm-hmm. carmen mcrae and that had a couple of those mainstream records that i used to listen to
2: mm-hmm. uh
1: but not for me and you know when i listen to him back is it's funny you know a lot of times the bass player is out of tune or maybe the chords that the piano player is playing is maybe not the, the greatest but still the they, the feeling
0: she had a feeling yeah
1: the group the whole team they mm-hmm. they just they had a feeling and the way the way they just made music and it's still for me a template yeah and they don't waste notes mm-hmm. and they don't do something because they can yeah you know she doesn't she very seldom scats mm-hmm. and when she does it's uh it means something and uh I say this all the time, she paints pictures with the words. When she says a word, the way she... I mean, this is in addition to the notes that she picks. Mm. I mean, she improvises. Her note choices are just... just They're great. They're mm. in the moment. I don't think they're... They're not something that so many people, uh, they learn something and it's an effect. They learn how... To, it's like a trick. Yeah. You know. Okay, when we get to the bridge, I'm going to do this.
2: Hmm.
1: And okay, it works. And then the next time you hear them, they do the same thing, and then you realize it's not real. It's just fake. You know? True. Um, I, I mean, it's a. Sh- it works. It's a show. But she's 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 real. Yeah. And uh, you know, everybody has things they 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 rely on. But I don't know. She's the real deal, as far as I'm concerned. I and mean, she used to play piano for Billie Holiday. Mm-hmm. Uh, when Billie wanted to hear what songs when she was trying to pick out songs through a fake book. Carmen's a very, she was a very good pianist.
0: Did she ever um, play piano when you played with her?
1: Oh, yeah, every every gig, she would sit down and play a uh, few tunes. Mm. And uh, some alone and some with bass and drums. She was fun to play with. I mean, her it, it I learned a lot because her phrasing was so I mean, it's just like her singing. It's her. I mean, she models what making music is all about. And mm. it's, it's her. It's, it's not about her. It's about the music. But she puts herself in the equation. Mm. And the biggest point is the music, not her. And uh, the way she phrases and, and um, uh, I just wish that I could go play for her right now. Just because I feel like i i still I feel like okay i don't really know anything, but I have a lot more experience, and I think I could play a lot better mm-hmm. for her now,
2: mm-hmm.
1: but you know she i'm just so thankful to be have had that experience and, you know hang out with her and yeah. do things with her on a personal level and a lot of people have extremely nasty things to say about her, but um, we had kind of a great relationship. and I understand why people say nasty things, but uh, I was tested also. Uh, but I think it's just, you know, you meet people in life and sometimes they like to see how far they can go with you. Hmm. And you have to navigate that however you can Mm -hmm. and and luckily my test (laughs) i mean you don't pass or fail you just you just do something yeah (laughs) and we we had an understanding that even after i worked for her we would uh spend i would call her up all the time and we'd talk on the phone and so you stayed in touch with her until she died Yeah, I wasn't in super close touch with her, but I would call her up and and it was like as if we just we'd pick up right where we left off. Yeah. And toward toward the end, you know, she was kind of she was sick and and she was depressed. You know, all of her friends were gone. And Mm. and she would say, I just want to I just want to be with Dizzy, you know, meaning she wanted to be in heaven with Dizzy. She wanted to go play with Dizzy. Mm. That was she really loved him. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, in a co- collegial way, as colleague.
2: Mm-hmm. You know,
1: um, anytime we were on the road together, man, it was just a blast. The two of them being around, all his band and and Carmen's band, we were all hanging out. Mm-hmm. And, uh, that was a
0: real. That was college. That was my Ph.D. What did you learn from Dizzy? Because he's he's really a rhythmic guy, also. Um, I'm, I'm curious, uh, any lessons that you got from him? Uh, just as a performer, you know,
1: how much attention, how aware he is of everything that's going, that was going on around him and how he uh, paced himself. And I, I tell you, uh, mainly Mickey Roker. Mm-hmm. And I would watch him play and watch how he would play a particular room I learned a lot, you know he would he wouldn't try to fill up the room acoustically. he would yeah. still play at a very balanced volume to mm-hmm. blend with everyone else and and it still felt great. God did he swing yeah, and he was hip it wasn't his it was very hip it was very kind of like age ageless you know, like the way Mel Lewis could play with people and You know mel comes from a generation uh you know where they were still pounding four on the floor Mm. thumping everywhere mel could play with like really modern type players and still sound very hip yeah it's true but yeah that's what i i I learned And, and yeah just how much he loved just seeing the interaction between on stage when we play together. Dizzy would sit in with Carmen all the time. Man, it was just what a thrill. What mm. a thrill to be. I mean that's what I've always wanted to do. I wanted to be a part of that team. Yeah. Yeah, I think they, they did a record, Carmen McCrae live at the Great American Music Hall. I just listened to that one before before we talked. Oh, yeah. I've got the I've got tapes of that which have mm. other Thing. I have to digitize that. I, I don't. I think they're in my storage uh, place, storage room. But um, yeah, Carmen said here. I don't know what to do with these. You take them. <laughs> <laughs> so I, ha- I have them. But yeah, the record. I mean, was what they picked out for whatever reason. But I remember they they put Clear Day on there. They put some tunes where he's playing with us. I. Every time I hear it I, just, I remember every second of that. Yeah. <laughs> you guys real...
0: you guys sound like you have a lot of fun. Yeah. together. And and that audience, it was the audience. That, that town was her town.
1: San Francisco was her. Yeah. Town. She
0: she sings a line and they react like uh, like you would yeah. see like in a, in a gospel church or something. You know, she she just sings a word and they go like, "What?" <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's really yeah. uh energetic uh, it was yeah to be
1: to be part of that team man. that was
0: that was incredible uh privilege yeah great maybe we can talk a little bit about um your your relationship with uh, mark johnson as a as a rhythm team okay uh mark is i mean
1: man he's so special Mm. He's really, I love Mark in every way. I mean, he's just fantastic. I mean, these days we don't play that much together. He's very um, focused on, uh, you know, his involvement with Iliani Elias. In addition to their non-musical relationship, um, they're very much involved in their musical um, mm. pursuits. So he's not really available so much
0: that's a shame um, because he he um he was some like 10 years ago 20 years ago he was sort of more on the scene and you could uh buy buy more records of of him playing with with you for example and you know I, i'm such a big fan of of you guys playing together uh, to yeah, me, thank you That'll to be- me you you guys are one of the the greatest, you know, in the history.
1: Uh, well, I don't know about that. Thank you. I appreciate it. But, I mean, we stand on shoulders.
0: <laughs> sure, I, <I'm, laughs> many you know, shoulders. We, all, we all know that there are so many great rhythm teams, but you're, to me, you're, you're part of that lineage and you've added something new to the game together, I think. Oh, well, thank you. And uh, you, the two of you together, that's some of my, my favorite records with, with Abercrombie uh and with with John Taylor, you know. Oh yeah. It's, well actually,
1: we did the last time we played together um outside of I cuz I've worked a lot with uh Iliani over the years and Mark um in in her projects, which is also a lot of fun. You know, but they, they they do a particular thing and and I'm not really uh it's just I I don't really have that in my schedule possibilities yeah. to to do, but um But the last time we played outside of that context was at Abercrombie's memorial. I um, saw pictures of that. Concert, yeah. Yeah. It was just at the last moment. Um, I don't remember the name of a tune, but it was a tune that was on one of, um, I think, a character's album that John did. And so the idea was I had set up a group to play um, to represent part of John's history in his groups with Mark Feldman the group we had with Thomas actually Mark was part of that group first Mark Johnson yeah, Mark Feldman. I saw you guys yeah and, and but um, it was complicated how to fit everybody in so Thomas Morgan played the bass in that group and Mark Johnson was playing with other people but uh, it was configured such at one point schofield me and mark johnson would play together yeah just uh, this one tune and i i took a listen to the tune. Said, okay i got it and it was the performance i heard of it was uh without a rhythm section so i just figured it's just you know we'll, we'll just swing out on it and actually i guess the, the other guys had mark had in his head well you know it's kind of like a straight eight floaty type of thing yeah, so the minute we we hit, <laughs> you know, Mark saw where I where I was going. I wasn't trying to force anything. I just started playing that way, and and Mark <laughs> Mark just kind of went like that and just jumped on it, and yeah. and Schofield just jumped on that, and it was like he was everybody was listening so hard, and he was like looking up as if to say. Uh, thank you, John, you know, oh, Abercrombie. Yeah. And, and I just broke up while I was playing. I couldn't, you know, I was just, um, it was incredible experience. Cause it was, we were just playing, you know, it was swinging. It was, it was funky. It was loud. It was really expressive, you know, yeah. Schofield plays loud. I know he plays really <laughs> I know. loud and, um, I can deal with that, you know. I, I I like to do that too. I I don't like to always do it, but but just the three of us, and we we've played together at different configurations over yeah. the years. I knew John at Berkeley. Mm-hmm. Uh, I knew Mark Johnson from 1980 uh, when I first moved. Well, actually, uh, he was with Woody Herman's band. I think I had met him on the road when he was with Woody Herman's band and I was with Carmen. Mm. We might have met then and then for sure we met in 1983 when I moved to New York. But he's very special. I mean, he's a funny guy. He's open. He's musically, he's, he's like a sponge. You know, if he knows the territory, he doesn't wear it on his sleeve. If he doesn't know the territory, he doesn't wear it on his sleeve. He's right there. He um, just melds into whatever is going on. I think that's probably why we get along so well. Mm-hmm. I, I have a similar approach. Like I tend to want to play with people right then and there. And, and that's I'm attracted to uh, players who don't have an agenda out other than let's make Connecting. music together yeah and and let's listen let's do it let's do it by listening you know. mm-hmm. number one at the top of the list and and there's not a lot of people that, that when it gets down to it that really operate that way yeah run their bands that way so uh it's a small community at least i found uh and mark is one of those people that um yeah i've just always enjoyed playing with him or I mean, he's he's one of the great bassists of 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 all times. Yeah, and uh, and I'm a bass freak. I I really because I grew up in a town where there was maybe one bass player who played Fender, and he he played. It wasn't even a technically it wasn't a Fender bass, but it was a a really cheap electric bass, and he made sound like gold. Yeah, Just, and that was it. And most of the times. Uh, when I would be working gigs, it'd be left hand bass with piano players who played the walking line as if they were comping, right? It's just horrible. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So I you know, from the moment I left, uh, Richmond and went to Boston or and to this day, I'm always uh, I'm just obsessed with bass players. Mm -hmm.
0: What do you what can you maybe for the bass players who might watch this, you know, what do you look for in a bassist? Um, feel, mm-hmm. uh,
1: sensitivity, uh, strength. And do they know tunes
2: mm-hmm.
1: without, I mean, do they can they play tunes and are they playing the shit that's in the real book? Or did they really put some thought into right. what, they're, what they're playing? And are they listening to what, how the other person is playing? And is there an exchange on that level? Even though I'm not involved with the voicings or anything like that, I can hear them. Yeah and And I can tell uh, when it's working and when and when it's not
2: mm-hmm.
1: and 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 sound, you know, but all those things I mean, if, if that's what I look for, yeah um, uh, time, the feel, and uh, you know, and if somebody's listening, well, then that leads to being able to blend and, and all the other offshoots of that, but those. Yeah, and the, and the sound, and the mm. intonation. But you know, there are a lot of guys that that, that do play out of tune. What their beat is so
0: strong that okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm wondering uh, when Killer Joy is coming back. No, I don't think I'm not one to revisit um,
1: things. I know, like everybody else wants wants to do that. I. I
0: loved having that band. Um, um, I, I just wanted to say I, I love that band so much. I used to <laughs> go see you guys when you, whenever you played in Cologne. So many great memories because when you were telling me these stories before about you were listening to music and maybe Ray Charles or James Brown or uh, you know Jimmy Smith or whatever, when I, when I listened to that story just now I had to think of Killer Joey. Uh, well, yeah, that's think,
1: that's what it was about. It was, because,
0: yeah, it was, all, how do you say it, all-encompassing, or is that the yeah, word? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's why,
1: that was the reason, the main reason I, w- I wanted to do that band, because um, I couldn't do that. I wanted to do something I couldn't do with all the other people I was working with. Mm-hmm. You know, when you work with other people, they're, yeah, they do their thing, and and uh, and I felt like okay, I'm bringing what I have to their thing. But I sometimes you just want to be flat out obvious.
2: Yeah,
1: and, and do something that just like for me, I just wanted to do something that had a great feel. That didn't ha- try to hide it. That didn't try to make it clever. It hmm. uh, was just very simple. We just play the song and and try and make music when people solo and and in a group way Mm. by everybody listening, because when you're leading from the drum set, it's, it's, it's kind of difficult, I depended a lot on what everybody else in the band did, I couldn't really control it. Because then when you start telling everybody how to play it kind of ruins the spontaneity yeah yeah there's so many people that do that, and I understand that they they hear their music a particular way, and um, you know, and I struggle with that as a band leader, I heard particular things, and i I wanted and i and I did say, listen, I really want this to happen, but you know, let's just keep in this realm, and, and but let's see how far we can go inside of it rather than outside of it or on top of it.
0: Do you know what I loved? There was one moment, you guys played a like a a quiet. Waltz, Mm -hmm. and you played it, and then you just announced that, you know what, I kind of want to stay in this zone, and Uh you you went for the same mood again after that song, and I thought that was such a courageous act. You know, that really impressed (laughs) me, because that. In a way that goes so against how I would have uh constructed my set like uh two two uh, uh quiet two, in two a row. two ballads in a row in the yeah. same time signature, you know, but yeah, when you ju- just played it, that was all I was asking for i was i want to stay here too, <laughs> please yeah. play more of that, you know <laughs> and you just said it, and i th- I thought it was so yeah, you were really in the moment uh Thanks, And Thank it was a great moment for me. Thank you. Thanks.
1: <laughs> I learned early on, I mean, just nobody said anything, but it, it just struck me, you know, and somebody would play the melody, just the melody of a song at a tempo so slow that you could barely keep your place <laughs> in four. It was like, wow all of a sudden all the all the funny stuff has gone away who are you who is what what is this what what do you have to say you know and it's really that's your moment you know that's your that's the space that you have to express something Mm -hmm. and and that's the chance we all have to do something that can possibly be useful to someone else. Mm. It takes, I mean, it takes a lot of strength to, to, to do that but, um, in every kind of way, not just physically. You know, to play burning fast and loud and crash and burn and that whole thing. It, it's, um, yeah, there's a, there's a technique and there are people who do that Great, and that's their specialty and stuff, but I, I don't know. I mean, it's, well, I do know. Like, if you're <laughs> on any instrument, when you play a series of 16th notes and you're playing them fast, you don't have to think about how you're phrasing them. Mm-hmm. You can't, there is no phrasing, mm. right? Mm-hmm. So I mean, just the sheer fact of slowing a tempo down. All of a sudden, what happens? There's space, and most people are so fucking afraid of uh, space that they they just can't stand. They gotta they gotta fill it up. Yeah. And usually, fill it up with themselves or some some bullshit <laughs> that doesn't really mean anything. Yeah, I think that's what's cool about even at an up tempo, all the greatest players to me, even at the blazing tempos, they all left space.
0: Okay, I was at a workshop uh, of yours uh, when I was a teenager. Uh, I snuck into a workshop of yours in Amsterdam uh-huh. uh, at the conservatory. And a few okay. things, you know, when you were a teenager, um, like you you already showed some things really really are ingrained in you in that little moments you know mm-hmm. and you talked mm-hmm. about that one moment where you i think you were playing with Jim Hall and you kind of at the end of a song uh fermata at the end or whatever the band was hitting a chord and then the you know the, there was a fade out mm-hmm. and you had the urge to throw your sticks on the <laughs> on the uh on this drum kit just like oh yeah that was
1: from that record uh these
0: rooms yeah i love that record i love <laughs> that record man and uh that moment really stuck with me uh having the courage to do something that's really uh, in the normal sense not expected from you mm-hmm. uh and but do it you know and if you have that kind of uh if you have that kind of uh, environment where you can do something like this, this is priceless, right? Sure. <laughs> I, I guess. <laughs> but um I, w- I was wondering how, maybe it's hard to really explain, but how did you arrive at this moment to get that feeling that whatever I'm doing is okay. You know, well, I don't really know that. It's all, I
1: mean, the, the I, I don't, I never really know that. It's just, it's just all decisions that your mind is making on a, you know, I can't even measure the split second, but do I hit this? Do I hit that? You know, I, I don't think at all when I'm playing, you know, if you did, you, you wouldn't be able to play sure, the music, yeah.
0: the, the music, is too you, fast.
1: the music, Yeah, the minute you start thinking, it's over. Yeah. And um, so I don't I, I, I can't. um, I mean, me doing that at that moment, it was it had something to do, I'm sure with, uh, you know, my relationship with the people I'm playing with and paying attention to that moment in the studio. and, And And the personalities involved, mine, Tom Harrell, Steve Laspina, and Jim, and having spent time together, and and we're in a recording studio, we're we're all trying to be, you know, turn the page real careful, you know. (laughs) All those things that are, you want to do the right thing. And then there's another part of me that's also, (laughs) that when I see that, I, it's very hard to describe It's I, I don't premeditate. It's just something like um, It's like if 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 somebody played a melody line that, that suggested a, a really nice voicing that wasn't apparent But you heard it and you go for it. Yeah, that's what it is Only it's not just about on the instrument. It's, it's You know feelings and and the atmosphere of personal person of your friends and the people that you know, you're sitting there in the room with and If there's tension, or you know how to break the tension. Mm. We do that for each other. And that that's all that moment was mm. it was I didn't calculate it. Or,
0: or, <laughs> it was.
1: <laughs> I heard the sound and I thought,
0: Oh, <laughs> Beautiful. It's a beautiful sound.
1: I mean, there's a line. There's a line, though. I mean, I think one has to be very careful. There's a line that you cross at some point. That line is it demarks where it's music and then where it is performance art. I'm not a performance artist. I'm 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 a musician. So. Um, there are people that do things. It's definitely, it, it's like, it crosses that line. So for me, I can say, since I, I can only speak for myself, but for me, I can say that that was, I was really in the music and, and in that moment at that time. And I was thinking like, Oh, we're making a document here that somebody's going to be listening to real, like preciously listening. Yeah. Wouldn't that be kind of cool to break that myth? yeah because nobody's that precious jim jim was not that precious tom's not you know but everybody's so careful sometimes and sometimes it's it's nice when somebody just lays something out on the table so that everybody can relax yeah you know sometimes when you play a blues and everybody is trying to disguise the fact that it's just a blues (laughs) and then when that person who has the the nerve to just lay it out there and really mean it. Wow. That's when the music just goes up, it Mm -hmm. it lifts up. That's always been a big influence for me. and that that, Again, from my very beginnings, I've always been attracted to people who did that. You you play a ballad, play a ballad. You play a medium tempo, you play a medium tempo. Mm you know, a lot of people, particularly about ballad playing. I think all instruments, and particularly drums, though it's it's insecurity really. I mean, after the first chorus, people get nervous. Yeah,
0: let's they want to change it, it. Yeah, change it up. Yeah.
1: Or let's do some kind of metric modulation. I mean, yeah, that stuff is fun, and and it's kind of cool if you can uh, get through it and keep your place and all that. But I don't know, there's something about just really meaning it directly, just being as clear and as direct with your intent. That's what always really inspired me. It's not about the genre of music, necessarily. It's about the the real, it's a personal thing. So some people have that focus. You know, like you ever see, I was watching the Charlie Parker clip uh, yesterday, him and dizzy it's the only recorded video clip where he's actually playing yeah yeah i mean who knows what kind of state charlie parker was in when they were filming that but but one thing's for sure he's he's like completely focused on the music Yeah. yeah incredible and and i've always been attracted to that you, know, you don't have to look like him you don't have to do what he did or anything like that but however it's an individual thing everybody does it their own way so that moment on, on that record that's <laughs> i mean i've 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 done that many times you know that uh, rehearsals or something when everybody's uptight and oh shit, we've got to get it right and, yeah. The band, lead but I'll count off the tune or something. It's like that old joke with a trumpet, a uh, big band rehearsing, and the band leader counts, one, two, three, mutes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's kind of like a, a take off on that, you know. Yeah. Dropping the sticks and having it rattle all through the drum. Yeah. Uh, Mel Lewis used to do that a lot. Yeah, you know, cuz he he was famous for not having any chops whatsoever. And Mel Lewis had no chops whatsoever. But in terms of technical, you know, idiot drum type chops.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But man, what he he had music chops. Mhm. So a lot of times I remember at the Vanguard or it would be his big feature drum solo. He would he would on purpose he'd be he'd try to go around the drums and of course he would never get there. he would just let a drumstick drop and you would hear it rattle. Yeah. It was very funny. Yeah. yeah. It takes courage. Yeah, it does. I think I but I think that's part of the that's part of it, you know. It's we, we are privileged to have the opportunity to present something the way that we think it could be.
0: Yeah,
1: I mean, that's what artists do, and that's what, as a musician, we have that privilege, and, and, and uh, it takes a lot of nerve because you go from that stage of copying someone Exactly, and being able to acquire the technique, and being, oh, I can do that. But then, what's your story? Yeah. What are you gonna say? And, and uh, what are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> You're talking about some bullshit, or, mm. or you talking about something that could be useful. Because not, don't waste my time. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I, I looking back and. and Those kind of artists are always the ones that have really stayed in my gut.
0: You have a very distinctive
2: and strong
0: cymbal beat. And I'm, I'm thinking about a couple of uh, particular records that start out with you playing just the right cymbal. And you know, there's the, that one record by Kenny Werner. Uh, I think it's called Unprotected Music. I think the first, first song starts out with you just playing a very dry cymbal. Uh huh. Uh, there's there's um moments in Abercrombie's uh records with the quartet which feature you j- just starting out with very strong you know ding 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 you know playing uh-huh, something like uh-huh. this um, also on these rooms i think second tune or something you're playing a blues in g it starts okay, out with you playing um and it's you know you you have a very recognizable sound, but also touch and, you know, feel uh, uh, I, I was wondering how you worked, worked on that.
1: Well, Tony Williams, he said, uh, he said it in different interviews that he did that he would just play the ride cymbal. For hours at a time. Nothing else. Uh, just playing the ride cymbal. Mm. And um, I have to say, that's great advice it's really great advice. Sit in a room and just carve out some time and just play the ride cymbal and work on whatever you're working on, if you're working on fast tempos or if you're working on slow tempos, but just play it so you get to hear what the instrument puts out when you're constantly, it's a piece of metal that you're hitting (laughs) rapidly and it, it brings a lot of sound and what are you going to do about that? You know, mm-hmm. how do you navigate that? And uh, and also, there's a way where you just slug away, and you don't listen, and you get nothing really, except you can. The next time you play, that's how you're going to play. Mm-hmm. You slug away, and or you you go in and put your attention on what kind of sound you are making. That's the shit. Mm-hmm. You put your attention on it, and and keep doing it and if your attention is on it you'll realize oh wow i'm playing if there was a bass player in here there's no way they could even be heard if i'm working on the cymbal beat and i realize that i'll keep playing and i'll gradually imagine what level the bass player would be playing at and what level i would have to how much sound would i have to do away with in order for that bass player to have fun Mm -hmm. so that they weren't having to go like that just to be heard in the ensemble. True. Or if the piano player is stuck with a spinet, a real piece of shit, what level would I have to play at so that they don't have to go like that Mm. (laughs) just to be heard? Because then they they have no place to go.
2: Mm.
1: And just play, play time, play time. That's how that's how I work on it, I, and I play tempos. Mm-hmm. If I really want to put myself on the heating block or, or whatever, I play a real slow tempo, and see, you know, that's hard. It's very hard to relax into it and and keep the energy up, keep the intensity up.
0: How would you? if You're using the metronome, I suppose, or no, 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 no. Don't use a metronome. Metronome is okay. dead.
1: Mm. To me, metronome is just a guide so that you can educate yourself as to what your tendency is. What do you use? My ears. You know, a a metronome is good. I'm not saying don't ever use a metronome, but for this, I mean, you have to at some point playing along with records. The the record is a metronome at some point, even though the tempos are fluctuating. Mm. It's a one way conversation. Yeah at a certain point, you've got to turn everything off, and you've got to do it, and that is where you play the cymbal and then record it for five minutes or so, and and then turn it off and take a break or whatever, and go back and listen to it with the same scrutiny that you listen to everybody else that you (laughs) criticize. The exact same scrutiny. That's, that's where you progress. Or if you don't record it, just pay attention to what you're doing. Stop playing and, and then listen to it in your mind. And then go back and, and do it again. It's, it's it's where your attention is. That's That's the key. Mm. You don't have to spend hours and hours doing it. But whatever time you do spend, your attention needs to be focused. You could easily waste four hours playing, you know, ding, 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 ding. You could easily spend four hours doing that and get nothing. Mm. So it's really a matter of, that's how I work on focusing my attention. Um, And then just playing the cymbal and listening to the instrument. What spot that I'm hitting creates more of a sound? What happens when I'm playing here? And then you're able to figure out, oh, if I hit on this area, it'll get more attack, or if I hold the stick looser, it'll get more of a different sound that might be applicable to a certain situation. It's just information. You have to learn the instrument and learn what options are available. Yeah, And then you really learn them so that when you go play with somebody, or even when you go play, present music, even if it's a solo concert, you are familiar with whatever options there are. Because you know, even playing alone, you have to listen. And, and uh, you know, like what note in the voicing do you want to bring out? You know, the middle note, the top note. Or... <laughs> it's, 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 a, it's a lifelong study, I think. You saw that video of Glenn Gould, right? Which one? Him playing the Goldberg Variations, him recording.
0: And then standing up? There's one where he stands up and sings the melody, uh, you know, standing next to a window. You know, he's oh, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, he's yeah. not melody satisfied. Fu- the, you don't yeah. you don't mean that one, or? Well, no, they, well, all of them. They're all okay. they,
1: yeah. you know, the same type of thing. You know, it's that, it's that intense. Yeah. You know, on the level, to me, playing the ride cymbal, learning how to really play it, can be as intense as. The way Glenn Gould, how he could just bring out certain voices, you mm-hmm. know, that, that must be impossible. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's, but it's it's pretty out there. It's pretty out there, but it's worth, I tell you something, it's worth going for. Because mm. when you get close, even when you get close, it makes such a difference. It just yeah. makes, when you hear people that just don't have any attention for that stuff, the music's not as good. Mm-hmm. really isn't yeah but yeah that's how that's how i work on it i work on it all the time i mean i yeah because i don't travel with symbols so every time i play i need to very quickly know what my options are yeah so the more work i do the easier it is for me to approach um a working situation and get straight to the music instead of being a prima donna about my symbols yeah my drums and all that stuff Mm.
0: I think you're kind of the front runner when when it comes to that not bringing your own symbols and uh, having your own sound within you as everybody does of course but nobody has the guts to you know to say well I'm not gonna Play my symbols. I'm gonna be inspired. What <laughs> by whatever is there, and that way you're more like a piano player in a way, you know, because we have to deal with whatever is there. Yeah. And we yeah. all carry our sound in ourselves. And uh, if we get you know caught up in criticizing everything that's in front of us, we're not in the moment. And uh, also we um, lose the opportunity to play differently. Also.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: I saw you play at the Stadtgarten and I think instead of a, you had two symbols, but one of them was, I think the tiniest symbol you could find in the, in the Stadtgarten <laughs> down in the toilet. Probably. Yeah, I think so. So when you were trading force, you were playing, like, you know, play, you're playing your, your force and then going back to the small the small symbol was so funny, and great, I loved it, I loved it, but I never heard you play like that before, you know, and it was still it was you, and I thought that was a big lesson, you know., oh, thank you. <laughs> when did you start doing that? Start doing what? Not traveling
1: Not traveling with your symbols. Well, it was pretty soon after I got to New York in the eighties. I, I I played electronics at a certain point. I had a big trap case full of electronics and key, uh, Casio keyboard that I used uh, and pickups and delay pedals and stuff like that. And I was using that stuff, and I would carry that around in uh, a small cymbal bag, and I had all small cymbals. In. I remember one morning, Paul Motion was with uh, the Liberation Orchestra. We were all staying at the hotel, same hotel. And he used to get up really early and he was just hanging out in front of the hotel. And I, the group I was with, we had to leave early and I'm, I'm out. And I say, hey, Paul, I said, are you all set to go? And he said, yeah, man. And he's just swinging this cymbal bag. I said, where's all your stuff? He says, right here, man. <laughs> I said, what do you mean? He says, this is it, man. I just take my ride symbol, and he had that laugh, you know, that he always would laugh. Mm-hmm. Steve Cardenas can really imitate him really well. I can't do it. But, <laughs> um, anyhow, that kind of got me thinking. Wow, Paul only brings a ride symbol, and then I thought, yeah. And shortly after that, I went through Amsterdam, and they destroyed all of my electronics and everything. So. <laughs> oh, no. That was a very short, after that trip, I realized, you know what, I mean, for other reasons, for musical reasons, too, is it didn't really work with a drum set for me. There's too much of a delay in hearing a sound and pressing a pedal and then getting back to playing. It, mm. it, that split second was too much for me. And uh, I didn't, didn't want to carry electric drums and have a, I didn't want to go the route of having a, my own sound tech because... Hey, guys, I was working with, we were lucky we had gigs. (laughs) So um, I just decided to shelve all of that and just really get into the drum and how to get what I'm hearing out of my instrument. And and then at the same time, I was thinking, Paul, he only brings one cymbal. Well, shit. (laughs) Why do I need to bring any? Mhm. Spring my sticks. And then I realized, yeah. Cuz I mean even years before that when I was living in Los Angeles before I even came to New York, my cymbals were stolen and Peter Donald lent me a hi-hat, his hi-hat cymbals and and I didn't have anything. I had a gig uh that the next night after they were stolen and he loaned me his hi-hat cymbals. So what I did was I got a pan and put a hole in the like a pie plate metal pie plate and use that on the bottom of the hi-hat and then i attached one hi-hat symbol as the top symbol and then the other i used the other one as as my ride symbol hmm. and i just kept my mouth shut all night nobody said anything nobody knew the difference yeah so that started me thinking about well it's not it's not so much the instrument. It's what it's how you're playing it, and what you're playing. What you're, what what is the information that I'm putting on a symbol, and how am I doing it? How am I playing the symbol? And I just thought, well, that's what I want to focus on. So I began to start to work on that because I I had to always do that. Mm-hmm. I played that little hi hat cymbal and I continued to do my little gigs and uh, play with people and, until I could get some other cymbals. But uh, that was kind of what started me thinking it's not the instrument, it's the musician. And that's not to say I don't appreciate good instruments. Sure. Um, does it in in the practical world of being uh, involved in playing creative music these days you can't afford to bring your own instrument uh bass players can't even bring their instrument it's not even a possible it's not even a thought anymore (laughs) yeah i mean it's 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 horrible conditions really but we navigate them Mm -hmm. uh, how's it on recordings sorry for interrupting but oh i use Sometimes I use, if I'm recording in New York, I'll use mine. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes I'll use a combination of, if I see something that's in the trash bin, or I call it, or the symbol bin of a studio, mm. I might pick it up, I might if I like the sound, if it seems like it might be appropriate, mm. I'll put that up. Or if I'm out of New York, in many cases in, in a studio, I just use what they have. Mm. And a lot of times it's not very good, but okay, it's what's there. Hmm. And I try I do my best to get this, you know, the, the best I can manage. But uh, when it comes down to it, I've got to really play some music. Yeah. So I've kind of trained myself to work on things like touch. I think it's really important. I, I heard your interview with Larry Goldens, which was fantastic. You know, Larry's fantastic, isn't hmm. he? Yeah, sure. I,
0: and Thanks for checking the, it out.
1: Yeah, uh, you guys were talking about sound reproduction. I mean, that's something that people don't really think about. Mm. Everybody follows the flavor of the month and they tune their drums the same way. And, yeah. Well, no, it's not it. Yeah. <laughs> all, all all the guys that I stand on, that whose shoulders I stand on, they all had a, a real personal sound that you could hear no matter what instrument they were playing. Mm-hmm. Piano players, horn players, drummers, and whatever instrument they themselves were playing, and it sounded like it was their instrument. It's kind of cool for me because it, it it I can bypass all of that industry talk,
0: you know, because that's really
1: not right.
0: Industry.
1: Yeah, you know, it's, and it's a relief because I'm frankly I'm not really interested in
0: it. But have you been you know contacted by you know simple companies? like having you as an endorser of them or
1: yeah but they it was a it was a um, well let's just say
0: it didn't work
1: yeah (laughs) you know I had ideas to um, okay I'll endorse your product and I'll do everything that you say in your contract but I have something I'd like to do which is you sponsor me to go in underprivileged neighborhoods and you donate product to that community that's a great yeah, that's idea, a, and they're not interested. Yeah, so I don't need to name names, but it's pretty obvious. And, and mm-hmm. uh, so I, I really uh, same with drums. I remember Dennis Chambers, uh, who was fantastic. Man, what a great yeah. human being! Yeah. Wow, we are so lucky that that uh, there's somebody in my lifetime. There's somebody like so great like him on the planet. Hmm. And uh, when we first met, you know, he was kind of shocked. I mean, you don't endorse you You're not with anybody, you know, and he set up this meeting so that I could meet uh, somebody from Pearl.
2: Hmm.
1: So he, it was really great. I'll, I'll always be forever thankful, you know, to Dennis for really uh, supporting me and being so generous. You know? So I meet this guy from Pearl, we have lunch. It's a lunch date, right? The first thing he takes out a piece of paper and he says, so what size stadiums do you play? <laughs> so I immediately, immediately, you know, we were at a fairly decent restaurant. We had just ordered food and, and I just decided, I, you know, I don't want to waste time. here. I want to take advantage of every moment. So I told him, I said, look, let's just not, let's just not waste time. I said, I'm not an athlete. I'm really a musician and, and I'm not gonna really have what you I don't play stadiums. I know what you're looking for and I know Dennis set this up in hopes that you know I could do something, but I, I'm just not that material. Hmm. And let's why don't we just have a great dinner or lunch? Why don't we just have a great lunch and enjoy the meal? And let's not worry about this endorsement deal, okay? Yeah. And that was that. Yeah. And I felt like really good about it because I, I'm just not a company guy. I, I never been that kind of guy. Like Dennis, I mean, he grew up playing stadiums. I mean, he could move mountains. He's that kind of a player. He he can get a whole he can get five thousand people up on their feet, you know. And he does it in an honest. He he's honest. That's that's him. Yeah. He, he's not doing it so he can get an endorsement, He's he, that's, that's Dennis, man, it's so great. It just so happens that that lines up with what those guys look for.
2: Mm.
1: Yeah, but I always appreciated the fact that, you
0: know, he… Yeah, that's nice.
1: Yeah, like those guys only come around when you don't need them. Mm. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's just part of It's not about music. I mean, I, I would have appreciated one point. I would have really appreciated to have some support, you know, but that uh, it didn't happen. And that's okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. As far as endorsements go, when you're on when you're in real visible situations, they all come around wanting to offer you a deal. And, and uh, it's not me. And besides, I don't carry that shit around anyhow. <laughs> <laughs> I play everybody's stuff. And yeah. My take on equipment is very, um, you know, a drum hasn't changed since they cut a tree down and hollowed out the inside of it and put a skin across it. I mean, that's part of what allows me to be the way I am, to mm. just play what, any instrument. That's, that's been my, way of life you know and up to now it's 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 worked and uh and it's made for some really enjoyable times on the road instead of wondering where my floor tom went in chicago you know traveling
0: gets so much easier yeah
1: yeah and when i'm on the road it's it's really a job because my job is to play the music for the people who come to listen to it the best i can and man I, i can't really do that stuff if i'm chasing around to repair a bass drum pedal or yeah I look for my exact type of snare drum or, you know um, yeah
0: like it says in the writer
1: you know yeah you know very seldom they ever read those writers
0: <laughs> yeah
1: so uh But yeah, that whole issue is like it's great to have great instruments, and it's really great to meet people who make them and who really care about them. There are some great manufacturers out there. But my main purpose is to use those to try and make the music happen, to to let the music happen.
0: Yeah, you you talked before about learning to read music, and -hmm. you know, learning to read rhythm. How do you prepare? when you play with somebody new or also when you play with an, somebody you've, you've played before with but he sends you or she sends you music how do you prepare to be ready for it on the gig uh it,
1: it depends sometimes i just have to study the the part what they send me i just have to study the roadmap and learn that i try to i try to get as familiar with it as i can i don't have one of those photographic memories but I I try and memorize the sound. You know, I'll go to a piano and try and bang out the chords Mm -hmm. and the bass motion. If if there's that kind of harmony, if it's that kind of music, if it's not that kind of music, if it's there is if there is no harmony involved, I try and learn the order of events that are taking place and the roadmap and the dynamic changes, the shifts and, and the, the changes in the music and where I need to be at a certain point in, this, in the piece. Yeah, I, I try and get as familiar with the shape of each piece of music as I can.
2: Hmm.
1: You know, sometimes it's it's notated really poorly, like maybe rhythmically uh, written in a way that's really hard to, to decipher, or just physically, legibly, the, the handwriting is, is so bad that I have to sit and think, okay, what did he mean here? You know, yeah, Or call them up and talk to them about it. Yeah, that's what I do. And in case, sometimes there is nothing to do except maybe be acquainted with the person, kind of listen to their music, what they do, what their aesthetics are, mm-hmm. just to try and get familiar with, with what can I expect, what, what's their range of awareness. Mm. I'm gonna to have to deal with you
0: yeah. I, I told you when we met at the loft in Cologne I told you I uh, I studied with uh, John Taylor yeah and uh, I, I'm my favorite record of John's and I love all of them but my favorite one is the one with you and Mark Johnson uh, Roslyn. Oh, yeah. and uh, I think you guys really pulled something out of 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 JT that anyone else could you know that nobody else could (laughs) you know Uh nobody else could Uh, because John Taylor was always a guy who played differently than others but you made him play even more differently Uh, (laughs) you know and I wonder if you can uh, share maybe a couple of memories of of working with John and also how he maybe how he was as a band leader and what the dynamic was in that trio Um, yeah, any memories you'd like to share, really? Well, first
1: of all, he's just a wonderful human being. John was just a great guy to hang out with. He loved life. He loved to he loved people to hang hang out with people. He loved to have a good time. Um it's great to great guy to be around. And that came through. He was in touch with that in his music. You know, he had a long relationship with Kenny Wheeler, and it's a, his music has a sound. I mean, not just on the piano, but his writing has a certain quality to it. Yeah. And also, his he played he played the piano. He had a sound. Yeah. He didn't just have fast fingers or licks uh, that he could pull off. I mean, he he had a really nice sound. Yeah. Yeah, it was like, he had the chords and the harmonies dictated. But in terms of the sonic atmosphere and the feeling, he left that up to me, which is, I mean, to me, that's what I grew up thinking. I grew up uh, learning that that was one of the functions of being a drum set player. That's that's part of your job as you get to interpret. All of this information that the other people need to really adhere by
2: mm-hmm.
1: i don't have to play b minor seven flat five they do but i get to interpret how that work how that feels by being a part of a team
2: mm.
1: and you know he would have things on the music like a, you know, a, a waltz or open feeling or something and, and, and then also i think john comes from a tradition you know, that's quite different. He's, he's British, and different cultures have different approaches. So I think he was more involved. And in, just in terms of um, feels and, and phrasings, he was more involved with like straight eighth note type musics, or that kind of phrasing. You know, I grew I grew up I came from, you know, I listened to all those Oscar Peterson records and, you know, and to a lot of people that can be very corny, but, but, but John, I mean, like for instance, I, I play a lot of blues, uh, like that a shuffle, that feeling like a, just a nasty, um, I, I love that feel. I've heard it since I was a kid. I've always uh, loved the way it made me feel. i have loved to be a part of it. I play with a lot of people who play blues, most of the night. And I, I don't think that that was really part of his background. But that's the thing that's cool about people. You know, when people come and meet, and they leave all of the ego shit at the front door. And that's what Abercrombie was a total master of, by the way, but when and you, you enter the room, let's say, and you're open. So he was open to like if Mark and I would get into a feel that was like really kind of, you know, obviously in, uh, shuffle-like or had that feeling. I think he thought he would kind of chuckle and then he would kind of actually have fun at toying with, with that and, and yeah. digging into that from his perspective. Yeah. And knowing that we aren't, I'm not comparing it to anybody I ever played with that was... All about that, or, or that only spent their life playing blues or, or phrasing in that way. I thought sometimes the the combination creates something special. Yeah, and uh, I think all of us were of that spirit. He had things for us that took us into places like, well, I've never done this, but yeah, you know, here's my version of it, and, and I would kind of do something and kind of. Laugh at myself, you know. We, we just shared that kind of spirit, and, and I think maybe that's what you hear. And you know, I, I wasn't trying to necessarily please him, and I don't think he was trying to please us. I mean, it was we were working for him, and of course, the object is is to make him sound as good as he possibly can sound. Mm. And, and but I think we share that with each other. It's not a one way street. Yeah. John was that kind of guy where it was definitely not a one-way street. Most people are. You just make them sound good. Thank you very much. Here's your feed. Yeah. <laughs> John was uh, it's fantastic. He was very open. and, and he, I think maybe he felt that we weren't timid in trying to do what he would want us to do. We were just ourselves. Mm-hmm. and And we all kind of had a silent understanding that, man, we're gonna try and make, let's make some music here. Yeah. (laughs) And I think that's what you hear. I think a lot of times in situations when you hear one person like established and you hear other people who are maybe either students or uh, not established, you kind of, what you're hearing is them trying to find their way and very afraid to do something you're trying to second guess what they might want to hear. Mm. So you you play like the person that they just played with on the recording. Yeah. You know, which is the worst possible thing you can do. Mm-hmm. Very true. Yeah. So I, that's what I remember about that part of what you said about JT. You know, yeah. And he was just a wonderful, a great musician. God, his music was so wonderful. Yeah. And, very special player and not afraid, just not afraid to go places, not afraid, he's not afraid to leave space, Uh, he's not afraid to share, he just listened. Mm. I I think that was, when you're around people that do that, you can't technically agree on that, it's just something you either do or you don't. (laughs) And yeah, I think probably that's what you heard. Yeah
0: beautiful what do you do if you don't feel inspired what do you do if you also maybe feel self-doubt you know getting out of a out of a situation where you kind of maybe second guess what you're doing too much how do you get out of it
1: in the late 70s while I was living in LA I would I worked with this guy named Lenny bro incredible legend And, and I had the incredible Good fortune to meet him, and uh, he lived with me for a very short period, and, and um, we worked together every week uh, for a while. At this club called Dante's, and other little clubs around L.A. And I recorded every note of every gig I ever played, and, and listened back to it afterward. And the next day, I listened back, and you know, and I started hearing like these awful nights. And I hated the way I was playing. And then what I hated even worse was how I sounded when I tried to make it better. (laughs) That was, that was, that was. And then I learned that that's, I learned not to, when you're having what you perceive as a bad night, whether it's you're depressed or you could be exhausted, you could be playing music, you you don't really want to be playing you could be with people you don't really want to be with or all of those things at once oh, no. um, or yeah you're it's just not happening on the instrument it's just not there i learned very slowly to just again be aware that oh this is one of those nights and i really suck <laughs> you know like that's the feeling that's going through my head yeah so I pay attention, I, I, I'm aware of that. But I add to that. I learned to add this one thing that really has helped me that, that's an interesting feeling.
0: Yeah. <laughs>
1: yeah. And, and then I get you know, it's just a split second like, boom. And, and, and then it's not even a second. It's like it comes through my mind, like boy, that did, that sucks. <laughs> <laughs> this is not going well at all. It's, like, oh, it's one of those nights. Yeah, that's what it feels like. Oh, that's an interesting feeling. And then, well, back to back, back to playing. <laughs> yeah. And I just so you just let you just let it happen. Because what happens, see, when you start obsessing about it, it's all about you. It becomes yeah. all about you. Oh, man, we got too much of that already, mm-hmm. especially now. Mm-hmm. You know, it's all about everybody's posturing. Like, yeah, it's about the music, but it's really about them.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, um, nobody wants to hear that. You know, like, oh man, I couldn't get that. I missed this. I missed that. You yeah. Know, it, uh, a lot of times, if if you're just playing the music what you perceive as being a horrible night it might that's your perception somebody might, else yeah might think it's the best shit they ever heard yeah and so when they come up to you and say wow i really dug that why insult their intelligence let them have a good time mm-hmm. just the, thank you and you know you can hang on to that <laughs> to the out. hate. <laughs> well, not hang on to the self hate, but just say, Wow, I that sure felt shitty to yeah, me. Yeah. But oh well, that's that's what that was.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, that's the way it was that night. And and I learned that very slowly by listening to myself on those gigs and, and, and like I said, I thought, man, this night, man, it just wasn't happening and then listening to the next set from that same night and boy, that really wasn't happening. And I remember trying to make it happen. I could hear every instance where I tried and it just, it was awful. And I said, wow, I do not wanna go there. And and so uh, it's just a long process. And then also I think by hearing people play on any level, just hearing uh, all the stars play and, Hearing your local musician play at a bar where nobody's listening and he's playing stupid, you know, music because that's his gig. Um, some nights are better than others for for that person too. You know? Yeah, hearing these great people have bad nights, I that's to me that's a real education. That's a big lesson. Yeah, because when you hear the records, you, know, you hear Miles Davis and you're like, wow. Man, everything was just perfect. And they just went in the studio and did that. Well, maybe they didn't just go in the studio mm-hmm. and and hit it first tape. Maybe they took 15 stabs at it, like Freedom Jazz Dance.
0: True,
2: yeah.
1: Which is now available, you know, the, that process is now available, mm. available to get a look at what went into that. Or here people hear great musicians in concert and where gee it's not that great yeah (laughs) i mean it's on a high level but it's that 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 special thing It's special it doesn't happen every time somebody plays and i think it's important it was for me to to hear a musicians play that were on that level that i idolized and then realized that wow you know that was so-and-so playing and you know it didn't didn't sound that great (laughs) (laughs) i was listening to maybe a moment where everything was happening and it was captured on record and those moments are really precious if you really follow a god (laughs) and they have shitty days too yeah (laughs) and i i really learned so much from that yeah, I think it's important to play with all kinds of levels. To put yourself, you know, in the position of playing with people who know a hell of a lot more than you do. Oh yeah, I think it's important to play with people who haven't been on the planet half as long as you have.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, I think it's important to play with people who are your peers. All of that, because uh, there's an incredible amount to be learned from being the most experienced one, and you're surrounded by people who don't have a clue. Okay, they can't play, let's say. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but what what that does to you're not going to get your rocks off playing. But what you, what you could do is learn how to be patient. True, and learn to learn to recognize, wow, they want, they want this or they don't want it. Yeah. And figure out that and be interested in in trying to help them along. You have the experience. They don't. How can you help them?
0: Because at some point somebody helps me. Yeah. And you remember those moments, right? I mean, yeah. It's very very moments.
1: Very clearly, yeah. And so I think there's an art and a real skill at being in that position where you know the answer, but do you have enough balls to just shut the fuck up and let them come up with the answer and pay attention to them while they're doing it? That's mm, hard. That's and hard. See that, yeah. That's listening. That's listening. If you can do that, Man, those are the kind of musicians I like to play with. now in addition to you know being part of other people's groups i'm really interested and excited about playing with uh, in duet with robin tchaikovsky uh, she's a percussionist and we've been playing together for a long time and have developed a, a language together we have completely different backgrounds musically she uh, is a contemporary classical Uh, musician, if you have to put people in boxes. Mm. She's not really in a box, but that's her background. I'm a jazz musician, my background. And and, uh, what the thing that we share is we improvise. We love love excellence. We love things that are excellent. And we love people that can play their instruments, you know, uh, that have good sound reproduction. and And they care about that kind of stuff. So we share a lot of things and a lot of passions together about music, and we both improvise. Hmm. Um, actually, for people who are listening to it, they should know this, too, because we just birthed this website. <laughs> Finally, Dick Tom, 63 years old, now yeah. a website. Uh, this is our duo website. Yeah, so you can hear there's some clips about what we do. And, and basically the reason I mention it is, uh, number one, that that's what I'm involved with now. I bring all of the stuff that we have been talking about. is really past. You know, it's, it's kind of what I've, I've been doing recently. And it's what I'm, I'm thinking about. It's what I'm very focused on currently. And it, it takes everything that we've talked about up until now. I I bring all of my experience and just like any other situation, I apply it to this. But for this, I find it really interesting for me because um, it's percussion. It's just it's it's drums, percussion. There's no marimba.
0: Okay, I was gonna (laughs) ask. Yeah,
1: yeah, there's no it's it's real like drums, It's drum music. And uh, but music, it's not It's not based in uh, an ethnic type of focus. It's not based in a party time, like, oh, let's just groove out. And, okay, we can put all this other shit on top of it. Because that's kind of how a lot of percussion-type oriented projects, that's what they're about, or it's just close your eyes and just play free. Yeah. I mean, those seem to be the options, pretty much, uh, you know outside of very meticulously crafted uh contemporary percussion pieces you know the idea with with us was to just play music that we compose on the spot and think about and shape and then reapproach. and in order to do that it, it really requires uh, a, a heavy listening ability not only to what the person is playing but the sound of the instrument Mm. because with percussion with drums um, most of the time we play in contexts where the information that's really necessary like in a typical jazz context uh, where there's harmony moving and people need to hear that information that takes precedent and it should over the ring of the bass drum, or the ring of the ride cymbal. Mm -hmm. That's partly why I used to, or I still do, tape up my cymbals all the time. I wanted to hear the bass. I didn't want to hear that roar of the cymbal. Mm. And I think about, you know, I've heard colleagues or people say throughout the years, yeah, I I like to hear the tip of that cymbal, the stick on the cymbal. They don't really care about is it a K? Does it have that Tony Williams or Art Blakey? Nobody gives a shit about that. <laughs> They're listening for, uh, in my mind, what are they listening for? The essence is like, where is the, where is that pinpoint? Where is that beat? Yeah. Okay, so outside of that context, there's nothing to stop the sound. You know, I can I can tune a drum, I can hit a drum, and The drum actually has an incredible sound. Uh, It's very complex. A cymbal is incredibly complex. There's a whole orchestra there, you know. And uh, this is a context where we both get to really bring that because we spend our lives learning how to harness that in ways that we can work with other people. But there's also an inner language going on, too, that, that, that because we can uh, have spent so many years or our, we spend our lives individually working on figuring this out, that it's really cool to let the sound of the instrument dictate the next move. Mm. In other words, the sound of the instrument dictates where the music is going to go, not the ego, the instrument. Yeah. It's yeah. not better then. It's 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 not like oh I don't want to play with other instruments anymore. It's not that. It's it's just an it's just another door opening for me or it's a possibility that it's like creating an opportunity to present a window through which possibilities exist that other people could maybe look into and say, Oh, well maybe yeah. Maybe drums could be perceived this way, or maybe yeah, you can do this with a mm-hmm. drum, yeah, and because because that's not really always uh, possible, and it, and it's really interesting how many people don't really listen on that level, mm-hmm. even colleagues, you know, they they within the jazz world, you know, it's just. Everybody falls into a stereotype, you know, or the drum set. Yeah, <laughs> you know, I don't know. It, it, it's it's really fascinating. It, it completely fascinates me at the melodies or the the sonic the the harmonies, not note per note per se, not to compare it to a B flat or an A flat or G natural or anything like that. But there is sound that happens that creates harmonies that move and and that shift and that we can uh, manipulate in certain ways as the instrument dictates. We did a record, Robin created these huge instruments called, uh, we call them the bears. They're they're just these huge wooden boxes Mm -hmm. that are hollow and on top of these boxes sit long pieces of wood that have been carved out, kind of like a giant marimba bar. They're big, some of them are, you, you'll see on my website, go through the video, there's a clip, we curated a series at Grand Central Station. There's a little clip, somebody took a movie just from a handheld camera. It's the only documentation I have of it. We put together a team uh, to play these instruments. They're sub-bass frequencies. And do you know Grand Central Station? It's a very big room, it's called Vanderbilt Hall.
0: Oh yeah, I've, I've
1: been there, yeah we had the whole room and this clip was taken from a residency robin and i had there uh, with the sculptor who helped carve the wood Mm. for these instruments and oh we had andrew cyril Ciro baptista uh kenny wallison um tyson sorry robin and i led this team of playing these things every day we had two concerts a day wow and um people were missing their trains. <laughs> 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 They're they completely missing their train. They were just came by and they stood in the middle. And just felt this and it was it was all these instruments. It wasn't even a drum set. There were mm-hmm. no drums. There were the, check it out on the I website. will I will check it out. Definitely. You can't really hear but we did a CD called dinosaur dances. Uh, we went up to we put all these instruments in a truck. And We went up to um, catch a ferry from Kiel and we went to Norway uh, because the only engineer we could agree on that we both knew was Jan-Erik, uh, probably mispronouncing his last name.
0: Konsauk, I think. But maybe yeah. But
1: anyhow, I called him and I asked him, I said, would you be interested in trying to record these? I said, and I described him the instruments and he said, well, I've never done anything like that, but I sure would. I'd Mm. be interested to try so we knew he was the guy great so we just went up on our own and set up and recorded our CD Mm -hmm. this this was uh, maybe 2002 or 2000 okay yeah because we've been working a long time on playing together and developing our communication together and uh, it is available I know downtown music you can get it through them or it's probably somewhere online. Uh, I'm not a business person, neither is Robin, so we just did it and kind of like sold it when we did gigs and stuff, and they're still around, I think. That one's called Dinosaur Dances, and they're a bunch of very um, shorter type composition, and just recently, we have the uh, good fortune to, have, to share this great practice space, and, and I wanted to... Uh, I had the idea to do a quiet record. I always wanted to do a quiet drum record. Mm. So I said, hey, Robin, why don't we do a a quiet duet? You know, like just record out in the room, no headphones. We didn't use headphones or overdubs on the other one either, but this room has a particular vibe in it that's, the instruments sound good when you play very quiet. So we thought about it and... We called up an engineer, very great engineer, Adrian von Ritko. Mm-hmm. I don't know him. He lives in Stuttgart. Excellent guy. He's a real tone master. And, um, he came up with a little portable setup and we just did it here. Mm. And we thought, we thought about the music and, and the composition. And we, it's a development of what we did on the first one. It's very long pieces. It's really a story. And, uh, there's some samples of it. I mean, that that you can get quite easily. It just came out. It's on Intact. Mm. It's on the website, or, or it's. I think you can go to Intact and.
2: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: and it. it was the. It was recorded really, really well, and we used Robin's instruments, which are great. It's her drums, uh, which use natural skins. Every we didn't have to go out. You know, we we had to because when you use instruments like that. Robin Robin has a lot of equipment. I don't have any equipment. Mm. So I just used what was here, and uh, Adrian captured the sound that was really happening. I'm pretty proud of it, just from that aspect alone, and from, you know, having something in my ear, like having make something that's music and not drum, capital D-R-U-M. It, it yeah. is, but the main focus is there's a story here, and it's told musically. Mm -hmm. and it's using the drums robin and i talk about it all the time or we do it all the time we listen to the sound and let the instrument show us where it can go Mm
2: -hmm. and if and if
1: and we've got our ego in check it it really works Mm
0: -hmm. And she has a lot of experience at the playing uh composer named christian wolf I know the, the, the there's a piece by Morton Feldman called Christian Wolf in Cambridge. Ah okay. Do you know that piece? It's a choir I, piece. I don't know I don't know that piece. I don't know Christian Wolf's music, but I only know that name from that piece. So Ah. Yeah. Well there's a um
1: again on the website you can hear like a little duet he wrote for us. Hmm. Uh it's in the video section. Somebody happened to video it, and it's the only time I've been able to really play the piece. It's very, for me, really difficult. Mm -hmm. But it was happening. It was one of those special moments. And Robin just flies like a bird. I'm hanging on for dear life, but I made it, you know. Great. But to play his music, it's it, you really have to listen. It's not just reading his notation. You have to listen to the quality of the sound and the duration of the sound. And, and Christian, being exposed to him through Robin, I've learned a lot about you know his approach is very democratic, the way he writes music. He writes music in a way that allows the players to be democratic. Like the players, they have to make the decisions. Mm, that's great. Yeah, and, and it's kind—you of, know—it's kind of sounds simple to talk about, but to actually meet people that do that, that are that democratic, yeah. and that, that put it through in the way they write the music, and you know, kind of the, the, what they encourage in the people in the ensemble you know, mm. to play. I mean, I've learned so much. Uh, that's that's not uh, that's really not my uh, specialty. It's not my uh, forte. At all. But what i've learned through working uh with christian and uh with, also with robin in that context uh, where you're playing written music is that openness you know to really listen on a deeper level and still make music but but have that from from basing from that point i take that everywhere i go when i play music in a hard bebop situation i think that is what you notice maybe with John Taylor. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, I didn't just learn it with Christian Wolf. It's something that's always been an aesthetic that I've been attracted to and and have always nourished, but I really got a shot in the arm upon meeting Robin and and Christian. It it fine-tuned that sensibility. And man, it's really fun when I go when i can take that into situations where i'm more used to or, or more it's, it's more to. my yeah more my expertise you mm. know. not that i'm on automatic but but it's just hey that's everybody does different things you know and, sure but to apply that it kind of allows me to drop out in the middle of a song
0: <laughs> i've <laughs> seen I you mind, do it
1: <laughs> yeah i it's, again it's not premeditated but i'm listening to the sound and i'm thinking like jesus christ we've heard piano comping we've heard horn solo screaming we've heard another horn solo screaming and now it's going to be there's another horn player up to bat yeah man i'm listening to the sound this sound is really kind of boring is getting old yeah and and i'm and i'm also sensing like is anybody else noticing this in the band
0: (laughs) right and well they will now (laughs) Yeah, that's beautiful I've seen you do that and it's it's quite a moment when you when you do something like that yeah I mean it's nothing new I mean I also learned it from Ron Carter yeah I mean, and, and Tony does it too on, on my funny Valentine he just drops out for minutes and you know oh, what he doesn't play on that album is, is worth that album
1: is a desert island record oh called. yeah for sure I mean, that to me, I that's an encyclopedia. What I mean,
2: yeah. what he does play
1: on that record is, mm-hmm. I just think that's one of the greatest uh, examples of, of some of the greatest ensemble playing ever yeah. in the history of music. Very true. And you can hear, I, I don't know what I would, I would make a good bet on it that he was listening to Edgar Varese. Yeah. At that time, because there are these little things He does these little snare drum statements Mm -hmm. on on My Money Valentine, just these little statements that it wasn't an exact quote, but that little snare drum statement that Edgar Varese has in
0: uh,
1: Ionization, Uh I I, I got to play that one time, and uh, I played the snare drum part, and Mm. I've heard other people do it, and I would almost bet my bottom buck that that he was listening to that at that time.
0: Yeah. I think Herbie was listening to that. Uh, I heard I heard a story about Billy Hart telling Herbie hipped him to Varese, you know. Oh, really? Uh, oh. So maybe there's a connection there.
1: Yeah, and also that was, I think, a breakthrough piece. I'm certainly no aficionado on that music, but that was a breakthrough piece. I think that was the first serious percussion piece that wasn't a novelty. You know, every other composer used the percussion section was a novelty, you know, like mm. the timpani pressing the pedal all the way down. Yeah. Dun, you know, just <laughs> novelty shit, you know, mm. I think that piece was kind of like the beginning. I kind of found myself, I guess, being really committed from a very early point to trying to use the drum set, I guess, to model it in the deepest way that I can possibly do as a musical. Instrument as an instrument capable of making music, not at the expense of a groove and any of the typical functions that is so beautiful. It's it's great. I mean, the timekeeping function and all of that, not at the expense, but in addition to, yeah. And I think people, when people think about that, it's like they start comparing. It's like becomes black and white. You know, it's either this or either that, you know. Mm. I just think that's kind of a waste of time, maybe bad habit to do. But I just look at it like it's a road that's not traveled that I haven't seen traveled so deeply. And I, I, I like walking down this road because the road isn't made yet. Yeah. And especially with Robin, like coming at the same journey from different perspectives and doing it together. It, it's really been really exciting for me. And it's very difficult to get people, <laughs> lay audiences, colleagues, fellow musicians or other musicians to, to accept. Yeah. You know, people still have a really fucked up attitude about drums. In 2018, I would have thought that things would be very different, but they aren't. Mm. in a way a lot of ways things have kind of even gone back you know we we were all trained not to listen Mm. (laughs) so um, be that as it may we like going down this path yeah
0: Uh, and you you, in a way to me you have always done that Um, you force in a very nice way uh, you force the listener and your musicians to listen by the way you to music and it has been super inspiring to see that and well thank you man thank
2: you